When's the last time we did a 90-minute episode? Let me check. Get your blah blah and listen to the Uncut Gems podcast, a weekly show where we talk about movies that no one else wants to talk about. This is episode 146, and my name's Randy. And I'm a big spender. <laughs> my name is Jacob. <laughs> okay, so last week we did our monthly check-in at the Steven Soderbergh station. We were talking about the laundromat, so uh, go check that out. Fun chat. Got a lot of things to say about uh, Soderbergh's, uh, you know, latter part of his career. But anyway, uh, that's available. Go check that out. Today, we've got two films that we're going to chat about. We're going to get to it right in a moment. Um, we're beginning Bob Fosse month here on Uncut Gems. So the man directed five films and we're doing them all this month. So to squeeze them into our month of programming, uh, today we're going to be talking about 1969 Sweet Charity with Shirley MacLaine. And then we're going to be talking about 1974's Lenny, starring Dustin Hoffman. Uh, it's just Jacob and I here talking about Sweet Charity. Uh, but in a little bit, we're going to be joined by the great Jack Luke Sharp to discuss Lenny. So let's quickly just go through our announcements and get the party started. I encourage everyone to head on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash uncutgemspod. Head over to last month's tie-in episode, The Exorcist. That is a free episode, so go check that out. The film that changed horror forever, I would argue. Um, and next week, we've got coming out on our Patreon another free episode, and it will be 1972's Bob Fosse film classic, Cabaret. And just backstory on this, it's my birthday month, so I'm the guy that's responsible for the Fosse theme. So Cabaret is like our gift to all of you, I suppose. So watch it enjoy it we had an amazing conversation jack was there for it and also we had cabaret stan randy perry it was an awesome chat so tell your friends to go check that out and if you sort of enjoy this type of long 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 form podcasting uh because we're just a couple of dads who ramble 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 about movies for hours uh consider signing up for our patreon it's just three bucks a month uh, 450 Canadian. And I think at this point, we've got 70 plus episodes there of just us talking. We've got an excellent catalog of discussions on some of cinema's better known films. We've got auteur marathons. We have a full David Lynch marathon over there. We're nearing completion of our John Cassavetes marathon. And we also have an impressive roster of Steven Soderbergh's better known films. And these are two projects that we've been working on in 2023 and they're winding down. And speaking of which, the most recent Cassavetes episode, I think was released just a couple of weeks ago. We talked about Gloria. And then in a few weeks time, we're going to be talking about Love Streams. And that will be entry 11 of 12 in the Cassavetes project. And our most recent Soderbergh Shallow Cut uh, came out just a couple days ago, at least at, at the point of the release date of this episode. Uh, and we talked about High Flying Bird. So if you're not interested in a subscription, though, you can leave a one-time donation at www.kofi.com slash uncutgemspod. That's ko-fi.com. Uh, and you know what? If, if you 
don't want to do that, no problem, no pressure. If you would uh, be willing to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts, that's appreciated. Um, but if you don't like us, we talked about this on another episode, that's fine. We're not everyone's bag. I get it. Just please move on without soiling our site with like a one-star review. <laughs> we understand that, you know, not everyone's going to like what we're rambling about. Uh, but yeah, just just move on. And, you know, thanks for stopping in as briefly as you did. All right. And the least you can do, if you're interested in helping at all, is you can tell your friends about us and certainly tell them about The Exorcist and Cabaret episodes, which are available for free on Patreon. And I think that's it for the announcements. Actually, Heat is still for free, by the way. So, you know, you can also listen to that for free. True. So there, are, there, are, uh, there are a couple others, this too. This year, like, three freebies this year. That's like, right. And we've really... got the, the Thing from last year and uh, Reservoir Dogs-inspired cinema is another one I think is free. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, plenty to choose from to figure out, like, hmm, maybe there is maybe there is some value in this sort of, like, three bucks I'll spend. Yes, it, the, yes there is value. Okay, just go and <laughs> go check pay it out. Big Spender. Go and spend <laughs> on the podcast, okay? Awesome. But if, if not, you know, do it. Fine. <laughs> it's just as well. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm super happy to get started with our deliberations on Foss Cinema. Uh, Jakob has coined a great phrase for what we're doing this month. We're the Fossy Posse, so let's saddle up and get into the man's career starting with his first film as director, the 1969 musical, Sweet Charity. Maximum weight in pounds, 3,500. What do you weigh? 128. Yeah, we're all right. Of course we're all right. Yeah, we're fine. We're fine. Yeah. We're just stuck in the, the little old elevator. Hey, are you okay, really? Who, me? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm fine. I, I have to get used to it. That's all, because this is this is the first time I've ever been trapped in an elevator. Trapped, trapped, trapped. Okay, Sweet Charity, 1969 film, was directed by Mr. Bob Fosse. Stars Shirley MacLaine, John McMartin. He plays Oscar. Ricardo Montalban is in here. Sammy Davis Jr., Chita Rivera, Paula Kelly. Ben Vereen, this is his first screen role. He's in here in um, one of the uh, one of the dancing lines. Um, it's written by Peter Stone, based on a story by Neil Simon, and also based on uh, Knights of Kiberia, a Fellini film. Did I get that right? Perfect. Okay, charity. Did, yes. Perfect. I mean, apologies, I'm still eating. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the story here, charity is. A taxi dancer is what her title is. Um, and basically, she works at a cabaret type of club and she dances on stage with an ensemble, but then mingles with the crowd and dances with men who purchase dances with her on a per song basis. That's sort of the idea here. And I don't think the practice exists in too many places of the world, but I guess it was a thing. Uh, 
Charity is a it's chipper. Pro- is it prototype of a lap dance? Ah, uh, sort oh, of. Yeah. It 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 feels a little bit like less a sleazy. <laughs> less yeah, less sleazy. It's a bit of a geisha type of thing, to be honest. Just sort of oh, get a woman to entertain you for a little bit. It doesn't necessarily have to be sexual, but. Anyway, so Charity's a taxi dancer and she's a chipper, head in the clouds type of romantic who one day dreams of getting out of the dance club and she dreams of meeting Mr. Wright and she dreams of him being her ticket out of this world that she's in, this life that she's in, this job that she's in. And the film is basically told in two acts. And I should mention it's a musical if it doesn't sound like (laughs) one already. (laughs) Um, But the first act focuses on Charity's encounter with one man, a rich and famous actor. That's Ricardo Montalban. And in the second act, uh, the story tends to focus on her meeting a flawed but potential Mr. Right. And that's the story that we get. Behind the scenes on Sweet Charity. Sweet Charity is adapted from a Broadway musical um, in fact, its initial Broadway run was directed and choreographed by Bob Fosse and starred his wife, Gwen Verdon. Shirley MacLaine was friends with both Fosse and Verdon. And just after talking with the couple one day, she sort of had this idea that, hey, this would make a film. So she talked with Fosse and Verdon and they talked it through. And then Shirley MacLaine actually took the idea of a film adaptation to Universal Studios. Uh, Verdon, who was the star of the show on Broadway, um, but she wasn't a, a nationwide name. She wasn't a, she wasn't a national celebrity. She wanted to play charity, but she understood the business side of things. So she gave her blessing to Shirley MacLaine uh, being the lead. So Shirley MacLaine ends up being our protagonist here. Um, Verdon did stay on helping uh, Fosse as assistant choreographer and John McMartin, maybe worth mentioning here. So he's the love interest in the second act. He was cast from the Broadway production. And I think he may be the only main role who was. There are a couple other actresses. So Paula Kelly and Cheetah Rivera, they were cast uh, from the London run of the show. So there, there is, there, there are a number of actors here who are sort of stage performers who are bringing a familiarity of the show on stage to what we get on, on film. Uh, the film seemed to have some shaky accounting reporting practices. So the account, <laughs> the tax the account, world. <laughs> yeah, sort of a, a laundromat type of thing. <laughs> the accounts of the film's budget range anywhere from 8 million to 20 million. The truth lies in between those numbers somewhere, but either way, it's Bob Fosse built a house. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know. Either way though, this is a huge budget for a 1969 musical. The film was released and became a huge disappointment for Universal. Is that who I just said they took it to? Yep, Universal. I think it's, isn't it, isn't it MGM? No, Lenny is MGM. Lenny is MGM. Uh, yeah, this right, is Universal. Yeah. It was a huge disappointment. So on that eight to 20 million, it only made 4 million or so back in box office receipts. Reviews were mixed. Fosse got some plaudits for some of the innovations and for the choreography. I think fans of the Broadway show sort of liked it. McLean was generally well reviewed for her performance. We'll get into that. Uh, mostly though, critics found it overstuffed, not all that fun, entirely too long. Vincent Canby, uh, he was really annoyed with it and he called it long, noisy, and a dim imitation of the original. 
the film has been reappraised in a certain form over the years, especially with uh, sites like Letterboxd and Rotten Tomatoes. On Rotten Tomatoes, for instance, it has a favorable summary of it, 82% fresh for whatever that's worth. At the time, it was nominated for three Academy Awards in art direction, costume, and score. McLean received a few nominations here and there just during the award cycle. She got a Golden Globe nomination. And a few of the production songs have become famous, iconic, one one might even say, uh, show tunes, Big Spender, If They Could See Me Now, those sort of seem to have stood the test of time. But here we are to see if the film on the whole has. Jakob, I want to know what your thoughts of Sweet Charity are. Look, <laughs> like I, I, I kind of find it fascinating how film critics of the time, and I just checked, Paul and Kel also gave it two and a half out of five and, and calls it um, Sweet Charity, the film adaptation of the Broadway musical, has been so enlarged and so inflated that it has become another maximal mus- mu- movie. A long, noisy, and finally dim imitation of the source material. It's kind of like they're all just like the, these sort of reviews of this are just like how close it is is it to a to an actual Broadway wow. musical? Because again, they don't really know that you can do anything different, right? Yet, but then again, this movie doesn't aspire to do anything different anyway. <clears throat> uh, no, no mention of just like how far away from Knights of Kiberia it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in terms of just like look if, same story you know but you know, it's like if you remove the songs it actually becomes a little bit a little bit sadder um but i'll i'll say this uh, i, I want to say at like 105 minutes in i was you know just i think we're we're ready you know are we ready we're ready to go <laughs> And I was just thinking, it's like there are these musical numbers in here. This is this this is a con- conventional musical as it, as conventional as it gets, really, right? <clears throat> Apart from maybe like it's, it diverges from the template of a musical rom com towards the end, uh, with its quote unquote unconventional downer ending, or is it a downer ending? Because they have a title card at the end. With Shirley MacLaine sort of like fading into a tree, <laughs> so she remained hopeful ever after, as as though it's like an anti fairy tale. Um, um, but but Jesus Christ, this movie is a little bit boring in places, and I feel it it is a bit indulgent in that. As in, you can still see that this is Fosse in his musical mode, and he really gets off on the song and dance numbers. The, because there are even there is a sequence in here in a nightclub, which kind of looks like it's taking t- almost taking inspiration maybe from like a Fellini film, film like eight and a half maybe with these sort of like black and white sort of um, like very sort of high contrast suits and whatever. Um, <clears throat> but then, but then it, it has like I want to say like three, five, four songs in it. It takes like twelve minutes <laughs> of just not even song and dance, just dance. These people in a club just dancing, and all you're just doing is watching these these the same cast of uh, of dancers just dancing. I'm just thinking to myself, we could be elsewhere now. <laughs> uh, and all the all these songs are like really too long, re- realistically. Like these these songs I count, they're like all, all like eight nine minutes long. There are not too many of them. There's maybe five five songs, five big numbers, I think, in here, something like that. But if you take them out, it's a ninety minute. <laughs> <laughs> which, which it could have been, and you know, it's a very conventional piece of filmmaking, very much entrenched in the sort of in the sort of nineteen sixties, nineteen fifties, 
um, like worldview of cinematic entertainment slash escapism. So for the most part, I was bored. Uh, It kind of redeemed itself with a few kind of nuggets of, oh, that's interesting, towards the end. So I'm looking forward to kind of just maybe diving into them a little bit. But overall, I'm, you know, like... I don't want to say I'm I'm not impressed, but I'm not impressed with this because it's like guys and dolls. It's like you know American in Paris. It's it, like I've we've seen this all before. I you know like I've seen it all. Like I feel like Peter Stormer who can't fucking sing. <laughs> it's just uh, uh, yeah, that's kind of where I am. Like not really a fan of this. Okay, but yeah, so that's me. <clears throat> okay, for me, so this was the first time I'd, I'd ever seen this, so I'm, I'm happy to have, you know, ticked that particular box. You've um, watched it twice. And I watched it 1.75 <laughs> times this week, actually. Just come uh, clean. Just come clean. Come clean. I can't, you, I, I can't I count the, the second. Uh, <laughs> and you were like, give me more. <laughs> no, where, where are you? In the file. <laughs> where I am on this is I'm of two minds. Uh, on the one hand, I really, really hate it. And on the other hand, and I hate it for many of the reasons that you just articulated well, like this is boring. And and in fairness, you know, the escapist musical, you know, the the, the show tunes and the, the song and dance numbers on a big stage, not really my thing. So, you know, the, the tradition of the American musical, the... Uh, you know, the Olivers and whatever, not oh, really my, my thing. Oh, shit. So <coughs> just this, a year before. That's right. So this feels like that and not a fan. On the other hand, too, something that I can appreciate is that our journey through Bob Fosse starts here and Bob Fosse is directing his first feature film. So it's interesting a little bit to see how he sees this medium, how he can use a camera, what, what telling the story that he's been telling for several years now on stage, how do I tell this story with a camera? And he's, he's figuring things out and you can see that he's experimenting a little, you know, so for instance, he's, he's shooting a scene in uh, central park, you know, which mm-hmm. that's, that's not in the, the tradition of the stage musical. So he's, he's seeing what he can do, like the location shooting and, and we see some of his, you know, little visual flares with, you know, push-ins and dissolves and and whatever. So it's it's fun to see this as that experimental piece that thankfully someone along the way trusted Fosse with, even though Universal didn't get the result that they wanted. I, I think that cinema is better because Sweet Charity existed, because it allowed Bob Fosse to have a budget and work with a camera to see what he can get. This is his transition in a way from stage to film. And I am completely appreciative of that transition having happened because he's just amazing. But in terms of what we get, we get a musical that I don't really like. Um, There's a few good numbers in here. We'll get into them, but this was a slog, I have to say. Uh, so maybe can we start the conversation because you you watched how much of the Fellini film you mostly got like through half, it, like so, half of it. Okay, but yeah, yeah. You expand you know, like, there's on only so many, so many, so there's there's so many hours in the day, so I didn't get to finish before we started recording, but I really tried to squeeze it in, um, and I'll say, like it it is like the first half of this film is essentially the first half of 
Knights of Kabiria, only with the small exception that Kabiria, which is the titular character, is would be the Shirley MacLaine character in here, Sweet Charity. Um, she's a prostitute, like plain, plain and simple. Like she's she's a lady of the night. Okay, <laughs> um, she ain't uh, no and, taxi dancer. Yeah, but then the, the but but the the premise is essentially the same. However, it's all kind of set against the backdrop of. Because you know, it's the 60s in Italy, so like the country is kind of in a period of post-war rebirth. So it's all taking place in these sort of suburbs that are just about being built. So this whole country is like a building site. Uh, and these people live in these weird shacks, um, these like buildings, you know, like made from like these aerated concrete sort of um, blocks. Um, they, no, they have like no elevation paint on them. Like it's all very rough and tumble. And these, like you can see, these people all live in. There's just a abject poverty, right? So it's, so it's, like it's it's interesting to see this as as compared against uh, what's essentially a, an escapist Hollywood musical where everything's colorful and jazzy and um and and heightened, right? Meanwhile, the the film and uh, the Fellini Fellini film is not heightened at all. It's it is very much steeped in realism. But yeah, so that's kind of what it's an interesting sort of comp- taking this sort of template and um and using this as a, a, a as like a staging ground for what essentially is um like a canonical romantic comedy, like a screwball command romantic comedy where there's this yeah. That's kind of how I see it, yeah. Okay. Um, cool. Well, well, thank you. That's an interesting... <coughs> I'm, I'm planning of... to watch this when we're done with the recording just to finish it. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. I've got I really a, wanted a, to finish. I've got a to-do list of uh, films, so I'll probably throw that on it, but heaven knows when I'll get to it. Have you seen um, any more Fellinis, by the way? Cause... Ah, Fellini is a blind spot. All right. I, so probably yeah. not. Probably don't start with that one. Okay, fair. <laughs> fair enough. Uh Okay, so for Sweet Charity, it's a it's a musical comes out in the 1960s. Where does this fit in with the world of Hollywood musicals and maybe sort of the because we it seems that we endlessly talk about sort of the transition of the late 60s and this is a musical in the late 60s. Um, where does this fit into the world of musicals? Like to me, this is a you know the um, uh, what's the French word for your, like your dying breath. <laughs> uh, so there's there's some kind of like you know, there's like there's the you know the uh, the coup de gras and whatever these you know the 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 the, the, the fatal blow to the um to, to the musical as a concept as it used to used to be regarded as kind of happens there mm-hmm. because it like it's indistinguishable from, from like a piece of excrement like Oliver right which won the Oscars. In a year, then also had two thousand one and Rosemary's Baby, you know, just saying, and the graduates, and oh, and Bonnie and Clyde, <laughs> probably easy, no easy writers, probably like a year before, but yeah, like you get the picture. But I yeah. feel like this kind of comes like this is a weird time because I remember there is I don't know if you've seen William Wyler's Funny Girl, no. Um, that's um William Wilder's I think final film I want to say uh, okay um let me just double Probably check because them, yeah. I don't want to you know this I don't want this to be an ex recto comment um you know 
And I have out of my one's, one's dying breath is son dernier souffle. There you go. <laughs> See, there you go. <laughs> um, William Wyler filmography. Uh, no, sorry, penultimate. So he did Funny okay. Girl in 1968 and then he did Liberation of L.B. Jones in 1970. But that was a, that was a let's just say, like a bio, is it biographical musical? Um, yeah, biographical musical comedy drama. Um, and it's actually adapted from a stage Broadway musical about Fanny Bryce. Um, okay, this uh, is Funny Girl, yeah. Yeah, this last one, Funny Girl. Yeah, Funny Girl. Yeah, that's the one. And th- this stars Barbara Streisand, and it actually looks like it has these moments where it, it kind of feels like it's the sort of swan song to an era. Like these, like people who make this movie, they realize that the the language the, the language of the medium has shifted. We no longer speak the same language as the people who read what we give them. Mm-hmm. Like the young audiences go to the cinema and they don't want to see any more of this. So they kind of like knowingly do this one last hurrah to just say goodbye to an era, you know? And it feels very final because um, mm. it has, um, what's his face? Who I said, I, <laughs> I, I said Barbara Streisand, but it has Omar Sharif in it as well. Uh, and it's a, it, and and it and it feels very you know very suggestive as though like well these films like you'll never see films like this anymore and then Bob Fosse goes like hold my shrimp cocktail yeah. <laughs> here I come you know with this sort of movie like this and I've um, and I've and it bombed right like oh yeah it didn't big. Really, yeah big time bomb right yeah and, and yeah so nearly he, yeah. nearly killed his career really <coughs> like at least the from outset, film right of his transition to cinema but then again it looks like it this is a lesson he must have he must have re-cherished as in like i can't just do more of the same <clears throat> you have to evolve with the times i suppose which is uh you know like yeah something that his characters kind of failed to do right <laughs> um just failed to change but yeah that's kind of a uh, yeah, that's kind of how I see it. This this movie as a as a musical is almost like a like it's few years too late. Almost like it was, if if it came out like 1967, 1966, it probably would still have made um, some kind of a splash. But at this point, like people were just sick and tired of this. Yeah, so I think I, that's kind of what it is. Yeah, no, I I, I tend to agree. And um, so the ten years, or sorry, eleven years uh, prior to. Uh, Sweet Charity coming out, there were five of the 11 best pictures in that time were musicals. And Funny Girl and Oliver were both the year before and they were both huge hits. But, you know, as we've talked about before, it's this late 60s, early 70s, (laughs) (laughs) this late 60s, early 70s shift is like, well, things are happening in, in cinema land. But, you know, when there's, there's always, there are always projects that are being greenlit sort of after, you know, after the, uh, if you think of the, the life, the life product, uh, the life of a product curve, there's, mm-hmm. you know, your early adopters and then there's sort of the, the high point of the curve. And then you've got sort of the downside where, you know, well, we're, this is where Microsoft releases Zoom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> where people aren't in love with the product anymore because the market has moved on. And I think sweet charity is one of those things that got greenlit a little bit after the boom and people didn't care. So yeah, I, I completely agree with your, with your take, but, uh, but it also sort of makes sense, right? That, you know, that 
there would have been an exec somewhere that would have listened to Shirley MacLaine and this all would make sense. Shirley MacLaine's a bit of a star and she would star in it and it would make sense because Oliver the year before uh, won Best Picture, like, you know. So yeah. And like Shirley MacLaine as well. Like she's a big Billy Wilder uh, Star Wars. So like it's all like, and, and the big execs in Hollywood, they were also slow to catch on. Yes. It took them a while. Like it took them, I think, until what, Honestly, 1970, 1971 to go like, well, maybe these, maybe these, these, these weird, arrogant kids from USC, they have some kind of a point, you know? <laughs> oh, exactly. Well, it's a money talks and bullshit walks type of thing, right? So as, as soon as Jaws makes a bunch of money and Indiana Jones and uh, Star like Wars. Like Dirty and- Harry, right? Like, oh, like John Millius kind of comes yeah. in here. He's just like, all of a sudden there's this 25 year old surfer dude who goes like, <laughs> who writes films like, uh, like the people want to watch and they're just, okay. Exactly. Yeah. something about this, you know? Yeah. So anyway, I, I, yeah, I think Sweet Charity, it, it makes sense. Like I, I totally see why it happened and when it happened, but I think it's sort of at the, the tail end of the, the life cycle and it's just, there's not a whole lot of interest in it, you know, from, from audiences. So in terms of style, how do you see what Bob Fosse brings to this? Like, so now we've, we've seen a few other Fosse films and we're just getting started on this adventure. Um, but I know you've seen all that jazz and we're talking about Lenny later. Uh, so mm-hmm. we, we have, and we're talking about cabaret on our Patreon and we've had that conversation already. So we have some other, Fosseisms that we can look at in terms of his work. How does Sweet Charity walk us into uh, Bob Fosse's film career? What what is he doing here? What, what choices is he making that lead to his other works? I mean, there there's barely anything, really. I mean, there are a few interesting moments where you see, like in in the edits, I think there's there are certain Fosseisms that you can kind of pick out where you just cleverly just draws attention to him but he still tries to remain entrenched in what you know like in the philosophy of the old right because even like the elevator scene i think like how it's filmed i think it's very much filmed as though like this is how like this maybe maybe this is his sort of invention but i'm not sure like this it felt familiar like i wouldn't i would expect expected this from like a you know from like a robert wise sort of movie or something like that you know like in terms of iconography but uh, where I think you mentioned this in your opening gambit, I think that the biggest sort of in- innovation that he may be contributing to is the idea of like the new wave idea of taking the camera out of out of a sound stage and doing a musical on the streets, and they have a sound sound song and dance number on just in a closed off street where they have a like the sort of marching band. Uh, scene they have a scene in Central Park where Shirley MacLaine falls into a river. Mm-hmm. Um, or gets pushed into a river, which is, you know, it's exactly how Knights of yeah. Kiberia starts. Um, and uh, so you, you see, and, and, they, and they put this is something I made, made a note for myself, and they may, may, may or may not come back is that the, the camera is in the water together with the characters, like with the actors. Oh, and that's, that's true. Some, yeah. That's something new, right? To like, like think about it, like in 1960 when like Breathless was was being made or or like 400 Blows, the idea of actually taking a camera into onto a beach and then putting it on a dolly and filming a guy running towards the sea, that was a revolution <laughs> like mm-hmm. at the time, you know, this sort of just 
democratizing the cinema by just removing the necessity for having a studio with a soundstage where every, with, with a controlled environment and just like shooting stuff as it is like putting the camera like sticking it on top of a bonnet of a car or something like this right like this was i think this here kind of embraced this slightly although it, you can feel like how how timid this is because he's still very much just i think his desire was like he i very much want to just do a musical <laughs> that's kind of like the overarching mission of just like oh, let me just do a music and it turns out it's like people don't want to watch this so it just it kind of puts you in this sort of on the like on the on the back foot and he goes like why well, i suppose i need to reinvent myself and then um you know and the rest is history i suppose like he, the minute he reinvents himself himself he gets an oscar <laughs> i see it a little bit as He's doing a musical and, and how can he use the new medium, uh, you know, in, in ways to tell this story that he can't he can't do in, in the theater. Um, so I think he's beholden to the material and, and especially with maybe Gwen Verdon sort of riding shotgun and, mm-hmm. you know, probably giving guidance and, and whatever. But so I, I feel, yes, there's a, a, a was, timid was type her, of approach. His wife, by the way. I don't know if they were married then. They were, they're certainly married, and then they were co-collaborators co-collaborator, through all kinds of projects. Right, because I think in, that including their Cabaret. The only child is Gwen Verdon's. Yeah, um, is is the mom right? So yeah. I think they were married. Yeah, I think they were married at this point. Yeah, um, anyway. and certainly collaborators. But and and she has a strong voice in Fosse's work. Right. So that's that's certainly uh, a thing. Uh, so th- I, I think that he feels that he, he has to create this show because it's a stage show. But I think he really does want to sort of see how this this medium works. I, I see in here, uh, you know, a lot of playing around with zooms and freeze frames and uh, just photographing photos mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of these just stills what that he's that he's using and he's <laughs> got dis- reproductions <laughs> he's got he's using dissolves as well and something to i i wish i knew a little bit more about his choreography before he was in film but i wonder if there's certain elements i'll, I'll call it micro choreography because i'm stupid and don't know any different but these small mannerisms that are really impactful like the flicking of wrists and the, the finger snaps and close-ups of, you know, just hips, not just gyrating, but, you know, making a statement, it, you know, it's like, it's, it's all these like, bum, bum, bum type of moves with the body. And to get aroused or because now there's some sexual moves <laughs> in there. There are, I don't find them arousing, but I find them impactful and I find them interesting because they're all really small moves and, and he can get a little bit closer and those might not be things he's using as much of, in a stage production, like if you think of the, uh, was it Mine Hair, where all of the mm-hmm. the dancers are draped over the chairs and they're just flicking the wrists and snapping their fingers, that probably doesn't play as strongly, I'm thinking, in a stage production. Maybe it does. But there's all these little micro uh, moves that he can sort of, sort of focus on because the camera can get a lot closer. Like you say, you can take it off the tripod and it's the camera that doesn't have to be in one of four places like you can meander with it or whatever so i find that this is sort of an, an interesting thing that he's playing around with here but he's still honoring the entirety mm-hmm. of the script every number every line he's, he's going through it all and yep. and and that's sort of the the tedium of it but i do see him playing around and i, I like could, that 
like the big scenes, like the big numbers, I suppose, they still kind of look like they're like from the 50s, like they look like guys and dolls, like they look like American in Paris and singing in the rain, like the sort of the almost married song when yes. they throw throw them a surprise party or or even the opening the big spender they they do look very classical and they they look like uh, like this is this is like Fosse's attempts like now I can do what I really like watching so I can do one of those myself and then he just sadly realizes that he's just like, like I, would, I, I, I should probably have more money if I want to continue doing this because no one's going to finance that kind of stuff anymore sorry yeah um as for the music, like often I would, I tell myself with, with musicals, well, you know what, if I'm not really into the story or the, you know, the thematic messaging, well, maybe there's some good songs in here and I can sort of, uh, you know, just bop along to the songs and enjoy the film on that basis. Does, does Sweet Charity <laughs> fulfill that for you in any way? <laughs> this is, you know, I mentioned this on the Cabaret episode, right? But, um, so patreon.com, so I can't jump spot, right? But <laughs> Um, I've mentioned, and it's free that one, by the way. Yeah, um, that the big spender song. I knew before even knowing what Sweet Charity was because it's it's a song that Beverly D'Angelo strips to in European version, <laughs> and <laughs> she goes like, "Hey, big spender, bap bap," <laughs> <laughs> and just and then <laughs> Chevy Chase puts the camera down because he's filming this. <laughs> Just they go and have sex in the bathroom, and later on they take their sex tape and they just tape over this um, as they film whatever on their vacation. And someone steals their camera, and then she becomes La Donna della Doccia or something like this. And like this, she becomes a porn star in Italy. <laughs> uh, so that's how I how I remember this. But other than that, these songs are very. Uh, again, this is take this with a pinch of salt because this is coming from someone who's not necessarily big on musicals like i've seen a few so i i, I hope i can <clears throat> uh like i can know my way around them enough to not sound like a complete philistine but i don't necessarily like them so i don't go and go out, out of my way to seek out musicals i don't go to you know west end um to 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 seek out musicals either um but <laughs> Perhaps this is because I just said, yeah. I, I but I do agree. Let's say with with musicals, you kind of have two attempts at like it's kind of like with documentaries. Like documentaries, you can like because you you can give five stars because you identify with the story. The story impacts you because it's a real subject of some description, or you can identify with the filmmaking. And if it, if it strikes both, it's kind of a classic for the ages, like the Thin Blue Line or something, right? Same goes for musicals. You can either just identify with the story and get on board with that or you or you can just bop along to the music and then you have a like a like if the story doesn't go do it for you at least you can still you know like the hills are alive with the sound of griswold you know they can still kind of do that right but i don't I, apart from the big spender song which which has a tangential connection to my nostalgic child childhood like i I'm, I'm very indifferent like this whole movie is kind of a very indifferent sort of experience for me and I have to really kind of just like look for certain things in the film, like thematically to kind of just say like, oh, look, this is like a red pill film. <laughs> like this is exactly what like the entirety of like a red pill YouTube is like, is like this, like <laughs> is, it's about this woman who just like goes through like a whole string of men when she's young and she's just things like she has all the time to settle on her because she wants to chase the guy who's like well beyond, like out, out of her league. And then, 
when and meanwhile she could have settled down with a very decent guy like Oscar something Linkwist, but now he now it's too late because the old the guy doesn't really want to get get with a woman who's had this massive baggage. So she's gonna like yeah, like I just like like I have to invent things for me to just latch on to saying like look it's kind of timely now. <laughs> it's just with this hot with this sort of like hot girl summer mentality of just like this this is this movie is Tinder is what it is, <laughs> and but. But musically, it's just because music as a musical is kind of just doesn't do anything for me. And as a story, just in general, it's very conven- it's a very conventional rom-com with a, let's just call it an unconventional ending. But yeah, this is what it is. I, I'm kind of, it's very bland. Yeah, for, it's for, yeah, for me, and I'm not a musical guy either. So, you know, the whole escapist element and, and go to the theater to watch something, I, I don't see too much of that. I could see myself possibly enjoying this in a stage production because uh, people on the stage singing <laughs> and it might be easier to sort of get that as escapist vibe and you know i'm in this larger than life type of environment but here not it's it's not working for me uh for me i like the big spender song and there is one really weird moment and i'm i'm thankful that it's in here although it makes no real sense for it to be in here, to be honest. But I really love that it's here. And it's where Shirley MacLaine enters the club with Ricardo Montalban Vittorio, this this rich, successful, yeah, famous actor. 12 minutes song numbers. And there's 12 minutes and it's three song numbers. And it's it's just a bizarre sequence of... Uh, <laughs> it's like from the Austin Powers sort of, <laughs> sort of world. It sort of is, but this is... This is just Fosse chore- choreography, and I'm there for that. Like this, this takes me to another place. This is something escapist and sort of bizarrely visual that I can get into, and I don't necessarily vibe with the music, but choreography can can elevate stuff for me. So this this grabs me. This ten or see, twelve minutes, and I I enjoy this. But see, this is where I'm 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 going to go out on a limb and say that this is um, Bob Fosse's being v- overtly indulgent in here, because I can get behind the one song, like the like you see, they go into a club and there's this song, you kind of get in Bob Bob with it, and then we move along. No, but there's so, a song number two. It has its own title, and then it yep. happens again. Yep. And, then, and at this point, I'm just like, it, I, I, how many are are we going to just dance the entire album? Like, what is going on? You know, is it feels like the guy didn't know when to when when to cut it because he probably had this whole choreography in place in in place, and he was just like, I've, we spent this much time working on this, we ruined John Cassavetes' time when we were rehearsing, right? Because he was kind of stuck like a floor be- beneath us or something uh, when we were rehearsing <laughs> this horseshit. So. <laughs> If I've worked on this, I by God damn it, I'm gonna use it, you know. And then just no one stopped him, I suppose, because it's uh, like completely superfluous. Like after a while, um, at, at least I was just like, you know, I'm, like, I'm ready to leave this club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, you know, you're not wrong in what you're saying, but for me, this this is something that that captivated me, and and I was I was totally fine with this. But it just. But yeah, like you say, well, wh- why is it here? Like it's it's just such a bizarre. The fact that it's three just numbers one. strung together. One yeah, and enough. I get that, and that's what makes logical sense. But you know, this to me is <laughs> spoilers for my list. But this is this is <laughs> amongst the best moments of the film because it's working for me. And see, all of the drama, this rom com stuff with with Shirley MacLaine, just 
honestly drives me bonkers. It's not just, oh, it's not working. She's brutal, annoying. So I do want to talk about her, but (laughs) I'll launch into it first. I think this character... Tell me how much you hate this character. This character is a cheap knockoff of the Anne of Green Gables trope. I'm going to say it. The spunky redhead with the heart of gold... You know, it's Little Orphan Annie that, you know, just Anne of Green Gables, Lucy Maud's character has been borrowed from because she's and she's got individuality and she's herself and, you know, she's always positive and bleh, whatever. That's not the depth of the Anne of Green Gables character. But Shirley MacLaine here, it's just she's she's frivolous. She's, you know, she's a prostitute with a heart of gold. Exactly. That's the archetype, yeah. right? Yeah. This, this is a pre- precursor to Pretty Woman, by the way. Uh, yeah, it kind of is. Yeah. Sort of. But there is no substance to this character. Mm. And just because someone is likable and flighty doesn't do anything narratively for me. And this is all we get from her. Oh, I want a man to take me away. And I think if you sort of drill into the, you know, what the character is saying here, give me a job. I want a man. She's waiting for luck or someone else to take her out of her situation. And mm-hmm. I, I'm i really bothered by that because there's not an ounce of substance that I feel I can allow for that in a character. Um, we're supposed to root for because of this charm. I'm sorry, Shirley MacLaine drives me bonkers oftentimes. <laughs> so I really love her in the apartment. But this has been a tough year going through her <laughs> Her films, there's three, and, and she really drove me nuts in all of them. Two of them, her character's name was Aurora, and here it's just dancing Aurora. And I would even suggest that she's not that strong a song and dance performer. So no, she is not. I'd say I, that I, I'm pretty sure she's may may have been dubbed. I I don't know because it I, felt I, off. She did, and. Shoot, I've, I'll get to it in the bottoms, but it seems to me there's a couple songs that, in my mind, she sort of ruins, and <laughs> I feel that just by she's being there. <laughs> and, and she's just not up to she's just not up to par with uh, who are the ladies' names the uh, the the London actresses. I'll just grab them here, but um, aside Cheetah uh, Cheetah Rivera and Paula Kelly, I think that she's sort of the weak link in a couple of those. Um, uh, sequences that are on the rooftops, the West Side Story ripoffs, those, yep. those moments there. I feel that she's sort of the the, the weak link in, in those. So uh, I'm frustrated in, in part because I've got this fruitless romantic comedy nonsense with this hollow character that I don't like and the performer sort of bothering me just because of her performance. So that's where she- I am on her. Because, you know, like I've been thinking about this and um, because she doesn't have her agency, like at all. As a character, she's a very reactive person. And I suppose this is written into her character as in she's supposed to be, she's this sort of Disney princess, right? Exactly. That she needs to be woken up with a kiss and taken away by Prince Charming, right? And I just feel like, well, it's already 1969, right? Like, this, like the women, the young women who would be watching this, they would just say like, I'm in university, bitch. You know, I'm I'm taking care of myself. I'm getting <laughs> skills. I'm not yeah, going and asking for a job and, without skills. 
this is but this is this is kind of like well this is where this is an opportunity for me to just launch on like a red pill tirade right <laughs> <laughs> because this is sort of like comes out of this sort of weird entitlement of of this kind of character trait right where th- she just thinks that you know it's not my job to take care of myself all i need to find is a man who will take care of me and i'll just you know and what are you going to bring to the table by the way i'll just bring myself you know, because they have this conversation towards I'm the end. Chipper. It's just like, I'm, you know, like, I can be whatever you want, you know? It's just, no. Like, the guy wants you for you, and he wants to figure out who you really are so that he knows what he gets into, right? And it's just, no, but I, am I, am, is it the way I talk? Um, do I talk too much? Oh, I can shut up. I can totally shut up. I'll be very nice. Oh, do I not talk enough? I can be really talkative. I can be funny. I can be smart. I can, like, you know, whatever. And it's just not the point because all throughout here like you have your this is me launching on a rant i'm sorry and this is important to me because i'm ra- i'm raising a girl at least i'm trying to raise a girl right where you have like your first like two three decades of your life to figure out you know like who you who you want to be like to and to develop your character you know but there's this sort of weird like like when especially like some like there, there's there's this some like sub subcategory of extremely attractive women who just defer to their to their natural beauty and they they can get a long 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 way in life just on the back of their looks and they don't do shit and all of a sudden they'll be just like give me a job i don't have skills well, just because all of a sudden all of a sudden like the gravy train kind of just you know, comes to its final station. <laughs> it's, just, it's, just, it's not a real train. <laughs> the gravy train is not a train. But you know, you know what I mean. Like, yeah. you know, the gravy train just runs dry, and all of a sudden, like, ah, you kind of have to just do do something, otherwise you'll be stuck in the same shithole as you were as as the sort of taxi hostess or or whatever. Where you as as Shirley MacLaine's character exactly just subsists on just her looks. She doesn't need to do anything. She just has to be and look nice, mm-hmm. right? And this is something I'm trying to kind of, you know, instill in my own daughter in this sort of idea of, well, you know, just develop your interests. Be, find out who you are as a person. Find people who like the same stuff as you do and then think about what you, what you like, not just, you know, what you like your other people to like you for, just who you are so that you can find people who are kind of like you, you know, or who would just, you know, be cool to be around you right because the danger if you don't do that if you don't do that then all of a sudden you become a nobody and this is scary and these like this sort of the shirley MacLaine disney princess type archetype which is reinforced in the disney princess archetype where we show our little girls and just yeah look be like fucking cinderella just sit there in a tower just and then wait for your hair to grow and then don't bring anything to the table into the relationship with a man or whoever. Just like wait for the prince charming to just look at you and say like, "Oh, you're good enough for me to pick up from like you, like you're an object on on the shelf." No, yeah, <laughs> it's just, and it really bothers me. Yep, <laughs> so it's just you know, hundred percent. Well said. I feel the same thing. I will often tell my kids, boys, mind you, but I will tell them when they grumble. And they're a lot better now, right? But they'll say, I'm bored or I'm upset. And my response is often, it's not my job to make you happy. It's not my job to entertain you. It's my job, hopefully over the course of your young years, it's my job to give you the skills to deal with those situations on your own. (laughs) 
Yeah, and exactly. it pisses me off this scene where Shirley MacLaine goes in for a job and she expects, you're right, entitled. She expects someone to give her a job. Why? Heart of gold. Exactly. And she Who smiles cares? and she tries to charm the guy and he goes like, no, just let I me. Mean, by the way, like this would make, may, may, may or may not come back in a bottom list. But how did she get may. an interview? Like there should have been a CV beforehand and go like, yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> just what is this oh no she was probably you know referred by some by some colleague i don't know it's all nepotism <laughs> but yeah but you know like with boys i suppose like boys don't get that much slack in life i think like just boys kind of just run against this sort of brick wall of reality much sooner where it's just like no like unless you i don't know exceptionally pretty i suppose but still looks don't really get us very far as as, as boys Right, because uh, tell me, yeah, I suppose it comes just comes down to like different prefer- preferences. Because like women, when they look for mates, they look for, um, for status and ambition and for drive and for other things. Like they look for for different traits than just looks, right? Like, yeah, like look, was this like this is something I've heard like lo- long, long time ago. It's just women can fall in love. No, w- women will, um, find attractive someone who they fell in love with as in they can fall in love first and then they find and then they can mm-hmm. find this person attractive yeah. for men it's the other way around right yes they're attracted so first will, and then they learn to love yeah so yep. so so the, so the dynamic is different so that, so but as, as an extension of that if you want to gamify this sort of the, the dating game you can actually just as a as a as a young woman you can actually survive for longer on looks alone because quickly for men, it just becomes like, like, what do you bring to the table? I'm just like, I don't have a job. I don't have a house. I don't, I, I, I don't look like I have a prospect of, of providing for a family. Therefore, you, you don't look like a suitable mate. Get your shit together, guy. You know, that's kind of like we, we tell young men, like, this is just the reality you're going to live in. So develop your interests, develop your character, work on something be useful be good at something find one one thing and and get get reasonably good at it that will be just take you so much further in life than anything else right meanwhile we just fail to kind of instill that that sort of mentality in girls because we reinforce the disney princess the shirley MacLaine of like oh you know give me this and just like because i'm pretty so you know like i i I can maybe there's just a prince charming right around the corner all i have to do is just wait for long enough and then maybe sift through enough men then they'll find one that will just look look like he's he looks good enough yeah (sighs) this is me of that kind of character brutal and as an Anne of Green Gables ripoff, I'll say this. Oh, in the she's book, also ginger, yeah? Yeah. As a ginger myself, <laughs> yeah. this insults me. <laughs> in the book, Anne of Green Gables, she became a success because she hunkered down and studied and worked hard. So Exactly. Boom, there's worked that. Worked on her character. Worked on her interests. She you know? got skills. Uh, so yeah, that that's it's it sort of bugs me about this film because it lives and breathes this this sentiment. And it's not like there's it's not hot like girls are boring is what they are. <laughs> yeah, they're hot, but they're, it's, but it's yeah. a problem. It comes with a problem. It is a problem because like <laughs> you sit down on a sofa with them. So it's just like, what do you want to watch? I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know anything. It's like, oh, what's the last book you read? Mm. <laughs> it's just. <sighs> yeah. You know, so terrible. Uh, what are you into? I don't know. I can be into whatever you want me to do. Just, this is not the point. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so th- this is a bit of a trouble Sorry. I have with this movie, and it's not like 
It's a the big music. <laughs> it's not that there's enough music coming fast and furious at us either because you get long breaks before you get a musical number. But then you again, know. when you get the music, I it's know, like there for half a day. <laughs> true. And then f- for me, what makes some of those seg- some of those musical segments seem so long is that Shirley MacLaine sort of, I don't want to say butchers it, but she drags it down to a point. She, so She, she makes anyway. Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone look like professional singers in, in comparison, you know? <laughs> yeah. Because I'm pretty sure they also butchered their songs in La La Land. Huh? Yeah, <clears throat> true. Uh, what else do I got? You know, these were the big talking points. Uh, is there any type of deeper conversation in here about young women, working professionals, got it. class? I think <laughs> we're sort of there. Check. <laughs> uh, is there a conversation about men suck? See, this is, look, for me, this is again, like, again, like continuing my red pill rant, as in like, this is kind of the the big tragedy of the dating market, I suppose, because this guy Oscar, you know, is kind of like he's a perfectly decent human being. He's kind of boring, but he has a stable job. He he probably worked on his on on his craft for long enough because you probably have to go through some kind of an educational um, path to become an actuary or mm-hmm. um, reactionary, as she says. She doesn't even know what an actuary is. I mean, in all, in all yeah, fairness, I don't few know people what an actuary do. Does. <laughs> But you know, like she, she goes. He's a reactionary. Uh, <coughs> I know it's a funny and cute line, but then again, tells you how stupid this this character is, um, and that the film's okay with it. And that yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and and it's all good. Go get him, girl. You know, just oh no, just fucking pick up a book and a dictionary while you're at it, because some words might be too long, you know. But there's this angle of like, it's not that the men suck. I think it's just one of those that you know, like if you go after these. Um, this high status, high achieving superstars, then they will treat you like shit because all they because all they know their reality is that they they are just swamped by women, so they get to get they get to pick whoever they want, and then they don't necessarily need to work to mate with anyone, right? So they will just treat you like an object because tomorrow they will have five others lining up and and asking to take them out, whatever. Meanwhile, a guy like this actuary, he probably would be a nice husband or something. Like he's just a bit boring and a bland, but whenever, but you know, like you can. This is material you could work with. <laughs> like he, he probably has his own interests because he like has these reproductions and whatever. So he's into like photography or something. So he has a hobby. He has a job. Um, he's probably very timid because he never had a lot of luck with the ladies because he was busy studying. So he was not gallivanting on the yacht around the world like a billionaire, like a YouTube billionaire, right? So he doesn't look like he has the life experience of a 25-year-old woman who's been with 57 men at the, uh, at that age. He probably hasn't been with anyone so because he was busy doing other things and and now he's a catch. Yeah. <laughs> Learning but, to become but, a productive adult. Exactly. <laughs> a productive adult. He has a stable life, a, a good, a, a good, reasonable job, and you know, prospects of, you know, providing a platform for a familial sort of foundation. So, you know, that's kind of what we're here for. <laughs> just make babies and just and you know, give them some kind of a way into the world that they don't stumble too quickly, you know, that they just get enough of a head start. You know? so I feel the film though yeah. isn't making this argument. I think that this is the reality of it, and 
you know, maybe our, our opinions, like we're looking at this uh, film, whatever, 54 years later. Good um, job. Looking on <laughs> it, yeah. Maths. <laughs> I think. So there's there's that. We're, we're looking in the, the past at this and we have, I think, a correct perspective. <clears throat> um, I think the film, though, is saying, you know what? Men treat women poorly. And... But I why? Because he didn't want to. He didn't want to get get involved in this. In like he he found her baggage overwhelming. Yeah, and he couldn't see. <laughs> he couldn't see the bright the bright shining light that is her heart. And because she that's has nothing bad. to offer. I know. She's just I, like, oh, I can be talkative. I can be this. I'm just you're nothing. Like you're. I agree. You're, you're my reflection in the mirror. Ask. I agree. I'm I'm with you a hundred percent. But this is a reason why this film doesn't vibe with me because I think it's saying that Oscar's in the wrong. Shame on Oscar. If anything, he's he's sort of slut shaming her in a way, walking away, dropping her like that, breaking her heart. You'll get these comments now as well. Because it is unpopular now to actually make these comments that I'm making. Because, you know, just saying, like, look, this guy is an acceptable dude. He probably, like, many, many women would probably settle with with him now. Like, a 35 to 40-year-old woman would probably look at him and go, like, you know, he could be a... I could could see my life with him. But then he probably will say, no thanks. You... Yeah, it's it's very odd to kind of just... Because they will be perfectly aware of the fact that there, there is you know like you know she's been with like a bunch of men and whatever maybe she has like i don't know a kid out of wedlock or maybe three from different fathers it's a fucking mess <laughs> so it's just this is kind of but this is the reality we, we live in because we endorse and we re- reinforce this sort of promiscuous sort of youths um because i, I don't know why but yeah I, I would say like oscar is just like i, I suppose like for, for fair enough if he if he was the the man that he he thought thought he was he would have probably risen to the challenge and said like you know what if 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 his sort of affection to this woman was was strong enough he would probably say like you know i can probably work with this baggage and maybe just try to figure this out let's let's talk about this but i think this is not even the half of it because she's a nobody yeah she this... doesn't have a character and a personality so she's she would be just a bore to be around and she'd probably be annoying very quickly and this, this 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 film this this play I will project onto the stage show doesn't want to have this conversation at all. Like it's just it's it's a Disney princess. I think that's sort of a good way to put it. And yeah. maybe in just sort of a, a shallow escapist uh, evening at the theater where you can you know watch high leg kicks and enjoy some choreography. And maybe there's even a couple other songs in there to enjoy that aren't in this. You know maybe it works on some escapist level. But this is sort of a base level not really effective story no. based on the character and that the care they want me to love Shirley MacLaine and I can't I can't get behind <laughs> this character and I <laughs> I find her sort of annoying too like you know like as an at, actress at the because uh, I like her as an actress because she's really good with Billy Wilder's sort of movies like Irma LaDuce or The Apartment in The Apartment she's amazing amazing right? yeah um, but so she can be amazing uh, so I, I I don't know if it's falsy. I think it's just a script because mm-hmm. I think so. Because I, I I'm, yeah. But what I what I what I will say is just initially, and now I'm changing my mind on this, and this movie's going down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because well, initially I was kind of happy because this movie, this, the Oscar rejects her, so so they are supposed to get married, um, 
and then he finds out that he she has a tattoo. She says, "Oh, I can remove it. It costs something, whatever." But I can remove this, and he realizes that she this woman has a baggage, and then he tries to talk to her about like we'll find out how many men she's been in, and then she then starts figuring out. Oh, what's wrong? Is it is it what I, what I do? What I don't do? I can do this, and and he realizes that he he's getting together with someone who's uh, not the right partner for him, right? So he just like just does the right thing, and just instead of just getting in getting engaged and go, or going going steady with them, he go she go he goes like, no, we have to get kind of like just end it now. Um, uh, and then the film reinf- I, th- I thought this was um, a good thing as in like wow this, this is Fosse reinventing the, the, the template because it's, he's kind of just giving a rom-com a downer ending right but it's not a downer ending because I was like she le- remained hopeful ever after she never learned a thing no she's still positive which I suppose this is the Fosse problem right yeah. <laughs> it doesn't change thanks. his characters thanks Ch- thanks Chafayevsky <laughs> yeah is it Chad Fajewski? No, Paddy. Paddy Chayefsky. Paddy, yes. I knew there was D's in there. It's in his first name, Paddy. Yeah. Oh, Christ. Yeah. Okay. So that's, yeah. I'm, no, because I felt like, oh, I could probably give it three out of five based on that. And I'm just saying like, mm, careful. I don't think I will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm out. I don't think I have anything um, else. And so, I, I, oh, I've got one more thing. Yep. Go this for is it, one please. thing that, I'm, and this is something that, I drew, drew my drew my attention actually in the ending when he says like because they, they go into this of the registrar's office to apply for marriage right um uh and he hold on let me just google something quickly to 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 have something to to stand on um but he says this line I was like what's wrong is it me and he says it's not you it's me mm-hmm and that's a cliche, right? Oh, it's not you, it's me, right? So I googled this. Um, if On Wikipedia, it's not you, it's me. It's a popular phrase used in the context of breaking up and is intended to ease the dumpies, <laughs> dumpy and dumper, by the way, you know, dumpies <laughs> feel, feeling in the knowledge that it was not their fault, but rather the fault of the dumper. History. So Merriam-Webster says that the phrase originated in newspaper articles written by Zachary Spence. Spence saw it being used in a sporting context in which players were either apologizing for for or boasting about their abilities, but the phrase morphed into a romantic context in the 1988 film Casual Sex, in which it was used in the middle of a seduction scene. Hmm. Well, Mr. Mr. Wikipedia, I think this... Well, this, yeah. In 1988, owes the, the It's Not You, It's Me... To 1969, you know, like I was just saying, like, is this the first time this has this uh, this phrase has been uttered? And I was just saying, like, possibly yes, <laughs> maybe. Well, interesting little, interesting little nugget. So, like, like I can't corroborate with any sort of other ev- pieces sure. of evidence because this was something I literally put out on my ass. But I was just saying, like, wow, this could be it. Like, because may- maybe there are other films that did it before it maybe there's something in the 40s or maybe there's some like right. stage plays or whatever because there's like whole body of romantic comedies and musicals that I, have, I actually don't want to have anything to do with so it's like, well, <laughs> like I don't want to go out and look <laughs> yeah you don't want to take on that as a but project if someone of knows, research if someone knows out there and I know there's like at least 30 to 40 people kind of just <laughs> coming back to listen to our <laughs> shit so you know if you know 
of a film that's older than 1969 that uses the it's not you, it's me phrase. Uncutjamespot.gmail.com is where you can find us and send us an answer, okay? Cool. So I'm going to leave it. Uh, yeah, so. nice catch. So that could very well have begun in this type of context with Neil Simon, who wrote this, or Peter Stone in the script. <sighs> okay, we've done it. Let's let's roll this into our final <laughs> thoughts on this. Uh, Jakob, <sighs> star rating, final sentiments, sweet charity, go. I thought it would have, thanks to this ending, it would have ended in like a three out of five. Uh, but it, no, it's not. For for like two hours and 15 minutes, it was a two out of five. And it remains two out of five because the the ending reinforces the sort of the shitbaggery that really annoys me in, in Shirley MacLaine's character. Um, I'm sure she's lovely as a person, but you know, the, the character is absolutely annoying. Her family's um, from Atlanta, Canada, actually. So, you know, that's be nice. Um so I'll, I'll say that Bob Fosse's debut is as conventional as they come. It has these sort of elements of well innovation here and there, but it it's very much entrenched in um, and maybe timid in what it could do and just doesn't take the risk it could have. Um, and it's clearly indicating that the filmmaker is indulgent and completely unwilling to kill his darlings. So. It's a sad, 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 sad show, I'll say. It's just, yeah, it was a very difficult two and a half hours to sit through. So, you know, Knights of Kabiria, well better paced. I'll put it that way. <laughs> 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 yeah. <sighs> That's me. Not an uncut gem, just to put it in perspective. Two out of five. You, you know, if it becomes a part of the Criterion box set, I'll get, get the box set and I'll just never watch this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, for me exactly the same territory two out of five um i don't know about necessarily the uh unable to cut his cut his darlings type of thing maybe i but still he's he's beholden to deliver this uh this stage show sort of as is but with the visual flair that might come with cinema and i'm so happy that someone handed him a camera and allowed him the opportunity to explore this uh, but it's not here. Like you see little zooms and you see him playing around here and there, but he's still beholden to deliver this thing the way it would unfold on, on a stage. And that hurts. I think further to that, you've got Shirley MacLaine's performance in here, which sort of drives me nuts, which is partly, I think, <laughs> her and partly the character. I think the character <laughs> of Charity is just a, a, a cheap knockoff of a literary heroine. And further to that, there are caked in issues there, which just drive me bonkers on just sort of a a personal level. I deal with people in my job every day who are trying to retrain for new careers and develop skills. And just (laughs) this entitlement, this this bullshit, (laughs) give me a job. What are your skills? I don't know. Will you give me some skills too? This just bothers me to the core. Not that I, I see this in a character on film, but this here character is the protagonist that I'm supposed to celebrate and be rooting for. And the film isn't giving her an avenue for retraining. She should walk herself into some sort of college or trade school or something. Talk to the registrar about signing up for a, for some sort of a skill, go develop that skill. That would be the story that I would want to see her going to 
Her, her going see, to a community college and developing a skill. I can see how this this scene might, might, may have given you like Vietnam flashbacks where you're just sitting there with like a thousand yard stare where I'm just like, <laughs> just fortunate sons in the background and just granted just like I've, I've had like 157 of such interviews with people <laughs> just oh just terrible give me a job like I, I, I must be good enough to do something <laughs> where's your resume like, what's a resume do you, just a, like, do you have a cover so, letter no so yeah do you, do you fancy flipping burgers? No, I think it's beyond me. Oh, beneath me, sorry. It's just like, or so. <laughs> it probably is just, beyond her as well. So why don't you just work on your skills, work on your personality? And she goes like, I want to have a nice job where I can meet nice people. No, you go and get this job to do a job. <laughs> you go and, this is not a uh, job is not a social so, occasion so you just oh you're bored in the house you want to go and meet new people and i and i feel the film wants to blame this guy that doesn't want to be with her as if like he's slut shaming her at the end and he really is it's two out of five not three anymore because i don't agree with this, <sighs> this this philosophy so anyway Let's move this into the positives because there were a few. There were two and a half hours to get through, so they weren't all bad. So, Jakob, what are your top three right, Okay, a little honorable mention. I really like how Oscar uh, jumps into a corner of the lift and just hangs on the railings. It takes immense upper body and core strength to do that. appreciate <laughs> the, the effort. Um, <laughs> um I've got um, the camera in the water. I really like this innovation of actually, you know, like going new wave and taking uh, taking the camera outside and putting it in the river together with Sherry McLean and just fading to actually drown her. Um, yeah. But you know, you can't have everything. I like the line in this in this interview that you hate. I was just like, I was going to be like, because she says like, oh, what what job did you say you're going to you're going to tell me? Because she said I I was going to lie, right? Um, I was going to be an assistant dental technician, and the guy says, "Oh, that doesn't sound very impressive." Well, it does. It does to a dancer hostess because she says she is a dancer hostess. Um, so that's that's number two, and the last one. Um, uh, or maybe I could just oh, oh, split this. I really like the 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 dance number that's of the 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 first out of three songs in the in the club i really like the choreography in there so i can probably just give it a shout but i'll say the it's the, it's not you it's me line and not because it's there but because i found out that it's that maybe the first time it occurred i was really happy with myself so i'm giving the top to me, to myself you know <laughs> good job <laughs> good job we have to do all this homework for these films these past couple of weeks between this and <clears throat> soderbergh making us do our own homework exactly uh, Anyway, okay, so for my top list, I'm going to go uh, Big Spender. The The number starts with a guy walking into the club, and the camera seems like it's just right on his shoulder and sort of walking in with him. I'm sure it's not Steadicam at that point, but it's some sort of concoction where the, the camera is moving in with the, the gentleman client, and then the whole number is is pretty good like that. Steadicam was invented what's maybe at the time because i think first steady cam okay. usage is in stay hungry okay maybe i think so hold on yeah you, you speak I'll I'll, okay. I'll I'll correct the record if need be number number two ricardo montalban i think he has sort of a cool suave charismatic presence really like the guy 
I think that um, I now know, and I, I feel I can say that Antonio Banderas is the Ricardo Montalban of the 90s and 2000s and 2010s and 2020s. Uh, I really like Montalban. I got to say, he was pretty cool. And he did make me think of Antonio Banderas a lot. Can no, <laughs> say himself. Uh, Steadicam? Steadicam, first, according to Wikipedia, first used in Bound, Bound for Glory in 1976. So it po- possibly wasn't in okay. Stay Hungry. Anyway, okay. you were saying? Um, and my number one, it's when uh, Shirley MacLaine walks into the club with Vittorio, with Montalban, and they sit down, and it's it's nice because the camera again seems to be on uh, McLean's shoulder as she's coming into the club. Great, but then they sit down, and the three dance numbers take over. And this to me is the highlight of the film. These these dance numbers take me away. They do something special with music. They uh, yeah, they light it up for me. The three numbers: the aloof, the heavyweight, and the big finish. It's just it's just choreography. It's it's Fosseisms and it's it's fun to watch and it's like ten minutes or something. But anyway, best ten minutes of the film. Bottoms. This should be a plentiful right. list. So remember how I mentioned the long dance number that I really like one like one one of them. It's like the fact that there that it takes like three days to finish. This is just mm-hmm. indicative of how you know Fosse couldn't kill his darlings, I suppose. Um Fourteen. This is my not fourteen and a half minutes in. The dancer looks like a Mars attack spy. There's this woman with this perv doing you know, like these sort of, and she looks like this. Oh, like from the main Burton's dancer. Mom. Yeah, yeah. She looks like because she looks like she's a ma- with this. This hair makes her head look massive. So she looks like this of in nineteen ninety what five six. Yeah. Uh, Mars attacks by Tim Burton. There's these Martians, they just put one in a human costume and they infiltrate the White House. <laughs> I haven't seen this movie in years, but this was something like, she looks like a character from, from a Tim Burton movie that I really, really remember liking when it, when it was first out. Um, and that was kind of like an odd choice. Um, could have gone on topless, really, but, you know. <sighs> Shirley MacLaine smoking into a bag. Yeah, because she hides in the closet, and I'm like, if some see, if 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 I was a woman, and if I had visited upon a man, and then he put me in a wardrobe, and said, like, "Quick, hide!" and I'm just sitting there with my clothes in my hands, with my umbrella and whatever, like a signed photograph. You know, this would be a moment where you just pause and you reflect on your life. Like, what am I doing? Is my life in a good place? I'm stuck in some some strange man's wardrobe where I can't really leave because I'm gonna cause a massive scene. Do I like? Do I need? Do I need to reinvent myself? Like this? Do I need an intervention? Is what I'm saying. Like hmm. this is you know. Yeah. And, the, and then another final. It's like Shirley's problems, as in like how self-centered this woman is. Like the guy passes out in the elevator. Instead of putting him in a safe position, she starts singing. Because she should have rolled him over on his side to make sure that he wouldn't swallow his tongue, or choke <laughs> on him. Right. On, 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 this, on his own saliva. Just put him on his side. And then you can break into a song and dance number. <laughs> Just do your due diligence first, lady. But now, entitlement. <sighs> Stupid film. Yeah, well done. 
Uh, okay. I'm going to start with just because we didn't mention him at all, and it's not necessarily a low, low point here, but I want to get the name. I want to get the name of the song. Uh, shoot. Rhythm of what? Rhythm of life. Completely unneeded. I don't know why we have this moment. It does nothing. It contributes nothing. I don't mind the song. In fact, I w- it feels a little bit like Nightmare Before Christmas, to be honest. And I don't actually mind it. But just because we haven't mentioned Sammy Davis Jr., sort of at the, the the head of the song, Rhythm of Life, I'll just mention it here and just how it's sort of superfluous and it doesn't really aid in anything. So anyway, my actual list. Number three, the song Sweet Charity. This is where John McMartin is in love and almost the whole damn song is these slow motion images of you know people hopping up in the air and joyously extending their arms because they found love and the song's not that great and i just hate it (laughs) brutal uh number two the entire scene in the elevator where charity meets um oscar or whatever his name is i just i feel that this is acted by a guy who is acting for the stage, not for film. I find he's so over the top with his mannerisms and he's just like over anxious and just overplayed. This would reach the back row in the theater, but you know, I'm just, I'm five feet from the TV screen. I don't need this. Uh, It just didn't work for me. I thought it was, I thought it was really poor actually. And number one, the job interview, give me a job. Everyone can do something. Find out what I can do. <laughs> what can I do? Dude. Do you know what I can do? I don't know. I just met you. You know, we're yeah. supposed to, this film wants me to cheer for people to lazily <laughs> make their life. <laughs> <laughs> there were cheering for luck to happen to this woman. And like even in the last, that freeze frame dissolve into hopefully ever after, we're cheering Give for luck. Break. We're cheering for a, stupid lottery ticket to, to save the day i can't yeah i can't get behind this it's just this, i think brutal. you hate did you hate la la land because it has like a similar message i didn't like here's yeah to the, i didn't here's like to, it here's to the ones who dream or something like this yeah i didn't like it oh. i didn't like it i don't remember being underpinned with this emptiness. no it's different because yeah. it's about these sort of people who just have these ambitions right or right and they try and yeah. they have skills <clears throat> and, yeah they don't completely live in a vacuum like Jesus. our sweet, sweet charity. Charity, anyway. <laughs> hope, Valentine. Valentine, Valentine, Valentine. Valentine. Gross. Gag. All right. Okay. Let's switch gears now, jump into our second film. We've got a special guest. Jack Luke Sharp is joining us. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing brilliant. I'm feeling a lot better from being ill. Not so long ago, and I'm excited to talk about my second ever Bob Fosse film in the Fosse Posse, which is Lenny, which I've been wanting to watch <laughs> this for a while, so thank you very much for having me. It's going to be a very interesting debate that's going to tackle quite a few things, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, there's, timely, you know? yeah, there's there's mm. lots of stuff to dig into, so let's get right into it. Uh, so we're talking about 1974's Lenny. What was the nature of this chant? Well, it was supposed to be talk between a man and a woman who were involved in the in the act of copulation. To is a preposition. Come is a verb. 
to is a preposition, come as a verb. To is a preposition, come as a verb, the verb intransitive. To come. I've heard these two words my whole adult life, and as a kid, when they thought I was sleeping on the mohair couch, it's been like a big drum solo. Did you come? Did you come good? 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 I come better with you, sweetheart, than anyone in the whole goddamn world. All right, Lenny was directed by one Mr. Robert Louis Fossey. It stars Dustin Hoffman, Valerie Perrine, a few others in there. It's written by Julian Barry. This, the screenplay is written by Barry, and it's based on his own uh, play, also named Lenny. Uh, and yeah, so as I mentioned, so it's it's written by Barry and based on his own work. I guess you could call Lenny a biopic. It tells the story of the life and times of Lenny Bruce, played by Dustin Hoffman. We follow Bruce's adult life and his career as a comedian and his <clears throat> relationship with his wife, a stripper named Honey. That's Valerie Perrin. Perrin? Say Perrin? Like Lam Turin? Like Lam Perrin? Must be. I, I don't know. I don't know the actors. I'm probably anyway. I've got a history of butchering names. So anyway, uh, probably worthwhile mentioning just in terms of sort of the story that we get. It's not a linear story. It uses a framing device of posthumously interviewing people who are in Bruce's life. Um, you know, these are the these are the actors, of course. So the film is told through episodic flashbacks, the culmination of which I guess are the progression of. Lenny Bruce's rise to fame and his struggles, uh, you know, with with alcohol and within his marriage, and this type with of thing. The law. With the with fuzz. the law, it's so it's got a similar structure, <laughs> I would say, even to Citizen Kane. So that's what we're dealing with behind the scenes in 1972. Bob Fosse arguably had one of the most celebrated years someone could ever imagine having as a director. He is the only person to ever win an Oscar, an Emmy, and a Tony in the same year for different projects. So he damn near got an EGOT in one year. Um, what did he fit- get? The Golden Globe? He didn't get the Grammy. Oh, Grammy, sorry. That's yeah. the G in the EGOT. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's the one he missed. That's the Golden Globe. <laughs> that would be an EGOT. So... Uh, very shortly after this run of success in the awards season, Fosse had uh, panic attacks and he burned out. He ended up actually spending a week in a psychiatric clinic. And shortly thereafter, when he felt a little bit better, he wanted to resume work immediately. Uh, and Fosse was one of those. We talk about these types of type A personalities. Uh, you know, Crichton was one. Soderbergh's probably one. We've been talking about them uh, off and on all year. Fosse fits into this group. So as soon as he could, he jumped into uh, projects. So adapting Lenny from a stage play, from the stage play, was a bit of a pet project for him for some time. Despite his success with Cabaret, he desperately wanted to prove that he wasn't a flash in the pan in the film side of the entertainment business that he wasn't just the musical guy or a one-trick pony. 
He was very, very insecure. This is, these insecurities are something he struggled with his, his whole life. He struggled to feel accepted. So he desperately wanted to do a non-musical um, because he felt he had something to say with this project. And he, he really wanted to be accepted as a dramatist as well. So Lenny itself, the production, was a bit of a troubled shoot. Fosse and Hoffman didn't really get along on things. Fosse pushed everyone to the absolute limits just in within within his own workaholic spirit he expected everyone else to sort of be moving at the same pace and speed as as he was so he he had these uh massive expectations of perfectionism from everyone uh at times he would push people for 25 takes like that was fairly common hoffman had made the suggestion that fossey still craved the limelight as an actor because fossey was an actor and a dancer back in the 50s and you know he he had some success on on screen as well even before his broadway career but as an actor so anyway hoffman wondered if fossey in his own way just wanted to sort of capture that 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 magic and be in the limelight maybe as as an actor so he felt that fossey was pushing him to give the performance precisely the way that fossey would have so he hoffman found it sort of stressful during this period Fosse was surviving on all kinds of pills, coffee, cigarettes, no sleep, just to get things done. And he once said about this, you know what, if you want to make something good, like a movie, you do what you can. It matters more than your health does. So what if you have to trade a couple of years for it? So that was his approach to creating art. Lenny was supposed to be an eight-week shoot. But it, it was almost double that by the time it was finished. It turned into a hundred day shoot because the shark that wasn't working. <laughs> <laughs> so, Probably with all the you know the repeated takes and slowly going through uh, the the list of shots mm-hmm. each day, and he couldn't blame Lenny this Bruce, one. Bruce the shark from from Jaws. No uh, one got the fucking job. No one got it. <laughs> no one got it. Jesus um, <laughs> Christ! And Fosse couldn't blame Willy Wonka well, on this. I? This was all on this is all on him. This going over. Uh, over schedule. So uh, anyway, the editing was also laborious because he had miles and miles of footage to sift through. And when he began the when he began the edit of Lenny, he also began directing the revival of Chicago on Broadway with his wife. So his wife Gwen Verdon had she had spent a decade trying to get the rights to do the sh- the show again. Um, and she had also spent a couple of years trying to secure the proper theater. So the timing for Chicago had to be open in 1975. So he began sort of the production of Chicago while he was also editing uh, Lenny. So anyway, their relationship is, is a whole other thing. Um, but yeah, Lenny went over budget. It went way past, you know, its, its deadline dates. Fosse was furiously editing Lenny with just a couple weeks before it was supposed to hit theaters. And somewhere right around its release, either right before Lenny's release or right after, uh, Fosse had a heart attack and he was hospitalized and had heart surgery. And Chicago ended up being bumped of kicked kicked ahead a few months anyway so and everyone should take note of this behind the scenes saga because it will be recycled on next week's show it it's basically the plot synopsis of all that jazz <laughs> so this is bob fossey uh, trying to edit lenny and getting a heart attack yep this this, this is it, what it is. <laughs> 
Lenny, when it was released, was a modest hit. Nothing like Cabaret, but it was successful. It made $11.6 million on rentals on a $2.7 million budget. <laughs> Lenny was generally, but not universally, well-reviewed. Ebert, for instance, he wasn't fussy on it. He wasn't fussy? <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't fussy on it at all. Uh, so it did, though, land with Academy Voters, where it was nominated for six Oscars and arguably the big six, Best Picture, Director, Actor, Actor, Screenplay, and Cinematography, for its black and white cinematography, too. Uh, it didn't win any of them. And unlike 1972, when Fosse beat uh, Coppola for Best Director, this time in 74, Coppola beat Fosse for Best Director. <laughs> <laughs> and notably, Valerie Perrin she won several Best Newcomer awards, like the Best Newcomer. That was sort of a chic award category in the 70s. She won several of those. And she was also named Best Actress at the Cannes Film Festival. So she was generally applauded for <clears throat> her work. So now it's time for us to unravel Lenny. So Jack, I'll get you to start us off. What did you think of Lenny? <sighs> um, where to start? Where to start? Um for some reason, I've always wanted to watch this film. I didn't know it had any um, sort of um, connection to Bob Fosse. Um, all I knew that it had um, Dustin Hoffman in, in an underrated performance. I've always ha- heard that reiterated throughout the years about, oh, if you like Dustin Hoffman, you should you should watch Lena. I'm not overly fond of Dustin Hoffman as an actor. There's something about him as a... Um, as this sort of a performance artist, I'm not, it, it, it doesn't ever encapsulate me. It doesn't ever like inspire me. There's always something I feel like he's slightly missing. I'm, I haven't watched Midnight Cowboy. I haven't watched Marathon Man. I haven't really seen most of his 70s work. So any excuse to sort of get into that, um, such as this, was was probably a, 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 a to, to try and get the so big started. <laughs> So you're basing this opinion exclusively on like meet the fuckers? Or? <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Um, not in, not entirely, but, but not without, <laughs> not without. No, I, I won't disagree. With you. There's just very I much. I haven't seen any of his seventies work. work, so it's yeah. just like I, or like the outbreak or something. Like that. Well, like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting because it, I see, I see, I, I haven't seen much of his seventy. His late sixties, obviously, the graduate, I haven't seen either. So I haven't seen his breakout and. He's, he's all meat, meat and potatoes work with um with the seventies, but for me it gets mm-hmm. to the eighties and he just sort of sells out, and the nineties is terrible. The two thousands is just nothingness, and then you get to Tootsie. Um, have not seen Tootsie. I've, I've, I've seen Tootsie in nineteen eighty. Do it with that Sidney Pollock, isn't it? It's, it's a decent. Mm-hmm. I, I like that. But have you not seen but, all the presidents men? Like I'm sorry. Yes, I, I have seen that as well. Yeah. Okay. I like that. Okay. okay. But good. I, I haven't <laughs> seen a, a great amount. So I'm always I'm always welcome to be to be to be shocked or surprised, and I um, I always underestimate as an actor. So nevertheless, I didn't really know what this was about. I didn't know anything about Lenny Bruce either. So this was both informative um, and and, edu- and educational in, in in a way. Um, I quite like this. There's a lot here that grows on me from from our cabaret conversation, i.e. the um, the cinematic quality, the editing, um, the narrative. Uh, the 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 sort of aesthetic style here, everything that I thought was quite compelling with Cabaret has been evolved here to be something that's even better. So on a cinematic level, it, it, the the creation level of it, I think this is is, is genuinely really good. Mm-hmm. I think that really does help sometimes the material itself because I think Lenny Bruce as a, as a as a person in this film is quite interesting. I think that this descent and then ascent and then descent. 
uh, as a story is always quite engaging. I think both performances are relatively good as well. There's a few missteps that, um, throughout, which which we'll we'll get to. But th- this is a film that really doesn't want to sort of discuss Lenny Bruce as itself. It wants to discuss a thematic, which is ultimately free free speech. And I know Jakob mentioned this in the beginning. It, it, this feels um, I don't I don't know really how to say this without sounding that kind of thing, but it feels horribly sort of on tune with what's happening today. And I have my own opinions about that with the, the comedic circuit, which you know with the Ricky Gervais and, and and stuff like that, and the Jimmy Carr stuff that, that comes out every so often about making like horrible jokes for the sake of it and stuff, and primarily like utilizing certain uh, demographics of of of, uh, of the audience to sort of pick pick and choose the fun out and then sort of say they've cancelled, but really no one's ever cancelled them. Very much like when it started with Dave, Dave Chappelle a few years ago. Nevertheless, um, this is a film that really primarily wants to discuss that, and I think I don't think it, I, don't, I don't think it collapses on itself, wanting to talk about one more than the other. But ultimately, you can't have one with, without the other. So I think Bob Fosse here has a really tricky film to sort of craft by trying to show Lenny Bruce, but also show the turmoil of what he's trying to get at as well. Also coupled with having to be engaging and immersive with with the with the cinematic quality. So I think for the most part he, he succeeds here. This is as, this is a lot of, obviously I didn't really have much pre predisposed opinion of it, but this was really good. If this if this came before Cabaret, uh, I'd be slightly shocked with Cabaret, but seeing there's an evolution, this is why I wanted to watch them sort of in order of how you're doing them. Um I'm I'm really sort of shocked of how good this was. Uh this feels like a nineteen seventies film. I like the, the conversation, like like The Godfather. This this feels new Hollywood. This feels like someone behind the camera is is really understanding craft and utilizing what that echoes to the audience. So I was really surprised with it. Um I wasn't shocked because I don't really have anything to go against Bar Cabaret, but this is a very different beast. I think a director to be able to do cabaret and this is 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 quite special in a way that, and and hopefully we watch all that jazz which I know is a slightly um more um autobiograph- autobiographical on the on Bob Fosset but then we've got obviously Star 8 to be interesting to see where this starts to lose or if if, if indeed it does but for the most part this is exactly the evolution I wanted to see and it didn't disappoint me cool Jakob, what's your history with Lenny? Oh, first time watch for me. Cool. Um, so I was, you know, came in completely cold knowing... I actually didn't know anything about Lenny Bruce coming into this. So I was just thinking, okay, let, let's see how this movie kind of sells me on this, right? And um, I have to say, this could possibly be my favorite Fosse film for now. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it, it is a masterpiece. Like, plain and simple. Like, this... This movie is is just such a captivating piece of filmmaking, and I think this. I don't want to kind of, you know, jump the shark in here, um, and then maybe just launch on a on some kind of a tirade about Fosse's sort of evolution as a filmmaker, but I, because I feel like this may be a a talking point in in a few minutes or less. <clears throat> However, in terms of general impressions, I I, I totally sort of on the same sort of page as Jack is, uh, as in this screams new Hollywood, screams new wave, right? And um, for me, it's doubly interesting because it comes from a filmmaker who just a few years, few years earlier was staging an anti-musical 
that was still a musical. And then before that, a few years, he was making just a conventional musical. And, he, and as he was doing this, on stage he was trying to get off the ground. It was just conventional musical theatre, I suppose. Like his, his own take on this, but still conventional musical theatre. He was still well ensconced in that sort of universe, right? And he And he picks up the camera and does this, which is... Well, I don't want to kind of throw um, compar- throw out comparisons to like Citizen Kane, especially that like, I'm not the biggest fan of this film. <laughs> um, uh, like in, in, on the long list of overrated films, Citizen Kane is right up there. Where was I? Oh yeah, because <laughs> it's an anti-biopic. It's one of those films that you know, like it takes someone's life, and instead of going, look, let's let's play it by the book. Let's pick up a biography and then translated into in the language of film it's a film that captures the essence of what the guy was about while relating some just the facts of his life are kind of secondary to everything apart from this one big issue of his tri- his obscenity, obscenity sort of um, trials right um because i think lenny bruce is probably like he was the pioneer he was the guy who like in the late 60s he he blazed the trail for guys like eddie murphy to be able to like he almost went to prison so so that Mm -hmm. uh, eddie murphy could swear on stage or like richard Pryor could swear on stage or for bill bear and dave Chappelle and all these guys to be able to freely do whatever they they want to do uh and then clearly draw inspiration from him in 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 their work so I think he's an Im- impressive character and, and I would say that Fosse probably give, does him justice in a way. And also at the same time, he's, hmm, maybe he, I don't, I don't want to say that he maybe sees a little bit of himself in him as well, and that he's kind of trying to, um, like look, he looks up to him in a way, right? Um, maybe also in his work ethic and like his like drug problems as well, because I think like Fosse kind of just shared the fate of like Reiner, Werner, Fassbinder, who was just like work, 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 Coke, 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 death, you know? <laughs> the 1970s. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so kind of, that's kind of like, he was, he was just like, if you have time to sleep, you can, you have time to write scripts. And so you just like, why, why sleep if you can take cocaine, you know? <laughs> yeah. Kind of really, really quickly. Do you, are you, yeah. are you familiar with Sam Kittison as well? No, no, I'm not. See, Kit- I know who he is. Yeah, because he, he's. Yeah. I, 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 I know Kedson. Kid, I don't know if it's Kedson or Kedson. I presume it's Kedson. I know him through the Joe Rogan podcast when he talks about his like inspirations. He reminds me of Lenny Bruce, but he also died relatively young. And he was very similar mm-hmm. to what you're describing about <clears throat> like gross indecency um, to to talk how he wanted to be like the first major comic of his time. I always thought Some I always get hit. Sam Kitson, that's it, yeah. Mm-hmm. I always get yeah. him and Lenny Bruce mixed up. I just wanted to, I just wondered if you knew much about him. Cause this, no, no. Uh, cause I mean, I, I'm looking at his photograph and it looks familiar because he was still like up to, uh, active like in like the 90s. Yeah, he's yeah, he, 20 he years a, after, but yeah. <clears throat> yeah, because yeah, yeah. I didn't know about Lenny Bruce. I always thought that Kit, Kit is it, sorry, what's, how do you pronounce his last name? Kitson. It's Kinnison, I think. Kinnison. Kinnison. K-I-N-I-S-O-N. I, I can't read, I can't spell. So, um, but Kinnison, I always thought that he was a trailblazer. So, trailblazer. So I was slightly shocked to find who Lenny, who Lenny Bruce was. Um, I just thought I just don't not don't mean to interrupt. I just wanted to know if you knew anything about him. 
No, no, but that's pretty much my opening impressions anyway. I really love the film. I really appreciate what Fosse's doing. And, um, I'm, you know, like I had, so, I have so much fun watching young Dustin Hoffman doing his thing. Like he's, he, like, in, in the seventies, he had this sort of like anger about him. And he, I, mean, I suppose he was also a bit of an asshole on set, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe this kind of comes through, but you can see how he really cares about his characters and it come, it comes through in this film, especially, I feel, uh, you could almost mistake him for, for Lenny Bruce in a way, as in like, is this really an actor? Is it, because he's, he turns out that his, uh, his comedy acts, they're really good. <laughs> so, so, you know. Is it, yeah, I don't know. Really love the film, so that's kind of where I am. Randy, you tell me that it's a three out of five, and we're gonna have a, have to have a fight in here. Okay, yeah, that, that's not gonna happen. So, yeah, I, I've seen this a couple times, not in a long time, um, and I always liked it. But you know, the last few years, there's you know been a few instances where I'll, I'll watch a filmography of of some director, and you just sort of see their growth. So I. I feel in a way like the last few years I've, I've matured in terms of how I view these films. So now I'm looking at Fosse from this perspective of slowly going through his career. And, you know, I'm a big Fosse fan. Um, and in watching Lenny in this context, and I also just to say, I, I recently finished the series uh, Fosse Verdon, which is a, a great little uh, biopic series of Gwen Verdon and Bob Fosse and their relationship. And it sort of covers some of the, the ground here and, and adds some insights. But but anyway, watching Lenny this time, I think it's a, it's a masterpiece. And I continue to be stunned with how fresh this cinema looks from a, from a guy who's spent, I'll say, 15, 20 years on stage from, you know, dancer to dancer and actor to director and choreographer. And for him to step off of the stage and in just a couple of years do something like Cabaret, which we talked about, and now Lenny, and especially Lenny, which he's not a one-trick pony. He's not relying on music. He's relying maybe on some of the stunts that you can uh, use in a musical. And But he's really finding, he's really got this interesting, he's got this interesting perspective on what the film camera can do for his story because he's from a world where telling a story involves big leg kicks so the person at the back of the 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 upper balcony can can see the action you're you're choreographing and you're projecting and you're singing in a faux way because you have to have this artifice just so you can project and just so you can be bigger and it's it's always this sort of escapist medium but here he really wants to find the character and find sort of a truth and i find that fascinating how he is uh, coming up with, I would say, in, innovations in editing in particular. Like his editing is so crisp and clever and just his approach too on finding the truth with the actors. Like the way he's he's working with actors, it, yeah, it might be torturing them, but man, he's he's really getting something something out of them because I, I think that uh, uh, Perrin is amazing in here. I think uh, Hoffman is, is amazing in here. Um, and it's also beautiful. So like, Fosse certainly has an eye like this is black and white cinematography is great, but the lighting is is great. Uh, so, yeah, th this here really, really, really impressed me uh, this time out. I really, really enjoyed this. 
in every imaginable way. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So uh, you guys both both hit it. And Jack, you said that this is probably one of the the chief conversations the film is trying to have. And, and certainly it's the, one of the conversations that Lenny in, in his work, at least in the latter part of his career, he was trying to communicate, you know, and, and find a truth. And it's, it's this business of the hypocrisy within society and how hypocritical we are uh, and with vulgarity, you know, vulgarity of language, the, the vul- vulgarity of uh, what's obscene, violence or, or words or sex. So let's start a conversation maybe around this because I also agree. It's, it's one of the main uh, talking points in here. Um, how do you guys think uh, Fosse is going with this? Is uh, because this is just this is Lenny Bruce. This is, is what Lenny Bruce was all about. Does does Fosse and his work here is is he adding to the conversation? Is he just sort of showcasing it via Lenny Bruce? Um, how is he treating this material specifically on the First Amendment stuff? Jakob, you take this away, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I was out of courtesy. I was just saying, I'm gonna let Jack speak first. No, I'm, I'm gonna fine. do it exactly the same to you, my friend. <laughs> Right. Okay. So I'll say that you know I think like Fosse is kind of not, not trying not to let this conversation die, in a way. Because, like, it's so easy to kind of because like if, if for all for for all I care, I think Lenny Bruce almost like lost his fight for for his freedom of expression, and I suppose it actually goes to show, especially like what what kind of times they lived in, right? Like these. I suppose this is this also is a further commentary on the state of just culture in general, right? Because before 1968, like the Easy Riders, and and like you you couldn't really show very many things in the cinema because well, studio producers would veto certain things or they would actively take the film out of your hands, um, and you wouldn't be able to edit whatever you have in your uh, in your movie. I mean, I suppose some f- directors like I don't know Weiler or. Um, or Billy Wilder, right? They they were so clever that they would edit in camera so that just like you can't splice this movie in any other way that I would have imagined. So suck on that, Daryl Zanuck. You know, sorry, blow on that, <laughs> um, Daryl Zanuck, um, or someone, right? But I feel like there is this conversation in here about look. I've been thinking to this about about this myself today. It's just like, well, this conversation is happening in America, and America always has always always prided themselves like we're the land of the free, we're the only country in the world that has freedom. Blah blah, you know. It's, but at the same time, there's this is a con- country where this prides itself on its First Amendment, on freedom of expression and freedom of speech, where they say, well, you we can't get jailed for jailed for what you're saying. As long as you're not inciting violence or um, or 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 violent uh, sort of um, uh, the revolution against the government, I, su- I suppose that's kind of the, where the line is drawn. But it turns out it's not right. Like there was a time. I mean, America is still a very puritanic, very sort of co- very conservative, socially conservative country, and it always has been. Uh, where you, I suppose Britain's no better anyway, because like being gay was was a crime until like nineteen what fifties sixties, um, and and then just talking about social taboos was was very like, contains co- co- like, still was frowned upon, right? But uh, it, what I'm trying to say is even today, like it's just like well people kind of just 
paint themselves as like, I'm a free speech, speech absolutist. Like, good for you to say, like, you live in America. You know, like, try and be a free speech absolutist in Putin's Russia, you know, or in China. Different game. Just don't be a hero, okay? Like, you, you're not... <laughs> Like you, you're trying to look like you're a hero, but you're not really. But the, but the guy in the sixties, like he was literally just on trial for, for 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 saying words, and then he was trying to argue the case that words don't matter as much as the context does, right? And this conversation, I mean, it continues to this day. Like comedians, like well, Chappelle has the, like same conversations, specials that look exactly like Bruce's, right? Where he ta- where he's trying to upset you with words, and then putting them in context that explain, oh, why are you, they make you look like a fool for being upset, right? Some people still choose to be upset, do better, because I'm sitting in, on my phone in, 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 my, in my little house somewhere and just, I'm, I'm trying to look like I'm, I'm a good person in front of the 159 followers on X or whatever the hell, right? Anyway, so I feel like there, these conversations still, still happen, Comedians will, like almost all comedians will have bits about how they came close to being either cancelled or uh, or have some kind of run-ins with their fans or they had problems um, with even with the law in some countries because of because they're trying to push the envelope. And I think this is kind of part of the uh, process for comedians is push the envelope is, is continually has has to be pushed. If you're not doing it as a comedian, you're not doing a good enough job, mm-hmm. right? And, and the line's constantly what, shifting too. Yes, so that's kind of you know where I think what Fossey is kind of gravitating to because I think he may be seeing um, a little bit of a parallel to what he's trying to do with the camera. He's trying to also, well, see where what you can do with this medium, uh, and see what what you can get away with, and maybe in like with the, in the universe that he was kind of he he came up with in right where in the golden age of the musical you can show nudity, you can show. Um, as, as sort of like a very explicit sex scene, and he's doing it here, right? He's doing it in well, he's not doing it in cabaret, but he, there is there is a su- suggestion of such such things in cabaret. There's there's imp- there are implications of homosexual themes in cabaret, and and so he's maybe he's he's looking up to Bruce. I think that's kind of what he's doing, right? So these this stuff, the, and he realizes that you know being able to actually say what you what you want to say, and then being able to put it in context without being tried for just using a word, mm-hmm. is is important to him, as as it's important to be be able to use an image without being being, or maybe even just putting the hip, American sort of the puritanic hypocrisy on trial itself, as in like, well, it's fine to show violence on the news every day and then show it to my kids right look these are dismembered bodies in gaza or, or vietnam he's at least as is in the film right but you know um two people <laughs> just having sex is is somehow a taboo right and you can't show it to people right that it, it's it's weird to them right that's kind of i don't know it, it, i think they kind of notice this hypocrisy and they actively try to fight against it that's at least how I see it. I'm not sure whether I, I, this answered your question because I I don't even know where I started with this. So you know, I, I actually I actually agree with a lot you've said there. I, th- I think that if you look at it like intercontextual, um, I, I sort of I, I didn't see it th- throughout the the film watching it, but having the discussion now, I, I completely agree with you about Bob Fosse looking at Lenny Bruce as a martyr to the cause of, well, the, the, the what the world is doing now. We need to be a lot more open. You know, if, even if that's regarding cinema sexuality. Um, fluidity of, of, of elements that Bob Fosse is undoubtedly 
um, a, a showcasing w- within Lenny in itself, but also throughout his filmography, beginning with like the likes of Cabaret and stuff. Um, and I, I think he he probably looks up to someone like like Lenny Bruce who set the the set the um, well the light on uh, the, the light on fire just to to prove the point about his opinions and and how he felt about it. I, th- I can see that the problem I have with this this thematic. And I think it's a it's a problem that that for me is it's become um, saturated. And the the irony here is is this 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 should always be an open conversation about these themes about being able to uh, represent what represent oneself through honesty, openness, and being being able to have a conversation. If you went if you're not able to have those conversations about re- multiple types of themes, if that's like the, the Vietnam thing, the, the the use of the use of certain words, or the discussions of of certain words, uh, discussions of what should be showcased, what shouldn't be, what's right, what's wrong. I think that we all we, we leave ourselves to a very narrow minded world. Granted, that's within reason. The problem with that is that I think that that conversation, especially in the last five years, has been saturated so much by the by right wingers. I feel like it's an issue where. The the not to get political here, but one side on the left is squeezing that to, to beyond oblivion uh, about what you can't do now, what you can't say to to, to offend someone or offend this w- within within no regard. I'm not going to go into any details, but you know you can't say stuff like this, right and wrong. Of course, I believe some stuff, some stuff. I'm like really, um, and then you have the other side of it, which is all the, the right wing is like your Lawrence Foxes, your GB News, making absolute <laughs> yeah. like scumbag statements about people being allowed to sort of say that through the medium of of free speech and how that's been taken away from and and it sort of got exacerbated to do the covid stuff for me where i granted i'll I'll make this make sense i'm not just going on a little tangent here please Um, but i feel like through covid it was exacerbated to be able to to discuss conspiracy theories like 5g or or killing kids uh through stuff and then then now you've got this idea of this being able to like make fake news to just tell like lies all the time for the Tory government. And then somehow nobody gets in trouble for that. And I think, I think people weaponize this conversation to a point where um, for, for good and for bad, of course, but people weaponize it. And it, it just, for me personally, it is a conversation that is on TV 25 hours a day. Now it's, it's, it's a constant communication between left or right wing people that that exacerbates the situation at hand it, it it also engulfs one aspect against the other and it just feels like it's a culture war when you look back at this it, it sets a precedent of, of very important things because you're going from the idyllic 60s the swing 60s into an incredibly dark time in the 70s which is going to uh, well, the, the 60s weren't that idyllic either. No, of, of, <laughs> of course. Still, Vietnam War was still yeah, yeah, raging you, 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 and people you, you, were you, just, you know, actively... Yeah, of course. <coughs> you, you get into rebelling. the 70s where it becomes really quite rough. You know, you, you then have the fallout of people coming home from Vietnam. You gear up for the 80s, which is even worse with the AIDS crisis, um, especially with the, with the, in the Reagan years. So it, it's interesting that... that that Lenny Bruce in the, in the late 60s is talking about these things. And I think to, to, to be fair to the actual conversation itself, they are prevalent and interesting conversations to have. Taking powers out of certain words is very interesting. But then it adds the question of, well, 
where, where does that where does that start and stop? Because then if there's if there's a use of those words, you know, where's the level there? So there's there's, there's a really interesting conversations to have. But the problem to me, I feel like, and it's not the fault of the film, it's it's more the cultural aspect of it now. I find those conversations to be absolute poison. You you can never be right or you can never be wrong. They constantly aggravate one or the other. It's just constantly exacerbated in modern culture. Whether that if you don't agree with something, you're 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 this. It's a pigeonhole people against each other. So I actually had quite a hard time indulging in this conversation. It'll, it'll come up later on in my in my bottom threes because it's no fault of the film, unfortunately. It's just that the 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 culture, and it may probably say more about the conversation itself that for the last fifty to sixty years it is still prevalent to talk about these things. And and really the irony is that these comedians like Dave Chappelle, Ricky Gervais saying that, you know, why are you getting offended about it? You know, if I joke about cancer, it'll offend someone in the audience. That's fair enough. Right. I I agree with that. But then you have this conversation about like, why, why shouldn't they joke about trans people and stuff? And it's like, you know, it, does, do you know why? Because if you can joke about me, then you can you, you should be able to joke about anybody else. That's why. That's called equality. And you know, if you can't take a joke, don't leave. Don't leave the house. No, I, it's I, pretty I, much I, what it is. Yeah. No, of course. <laughs> There's not, I, I agree with the sentiment, the idea of it. But the problem is, it's like comedy. It's like the um, I can't remember his name. The uh, Brassai Phil, is it Philip Morris had this has this identity of comedy where if you're going to attack someone make it a comedic but be, make it based in fact so with brass eye take, take deconstructs um, 90s media four lions deconstructs the idea of what a terrorist is um you know and also tried to do it a few years ago in, in with um uh african-american muslims in in america which was 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 quite a, a miss but f- for me the comedic sensibility is like prickish verse saying of oh, these comedians being cancelled for saying stuff it's like, well, I don't think I don't think you by the by the the onus of being a comedian or, or being able to say those things, I don't think anyone can be cancelled like that anyway. And also, those people get off on that, like it, it, it creates them to a new hierarchy. I, I don't know. I just I just find it I just find it poisonous to have this conversation about it. It's not fault of the film itself, not to go, not to go back into it, but I just find that to, to indulge in it now takes a, a, a very difficult. Um, inspiration for me to sort of jump into it that being said i think how bob fossey handles it is quite it's quite interesting and ultimately it has given this film legs beyond its time because it is dated in certain aspects but because of that thematic is quite rich and ultimately because culture has never sort of wanted to have these conversations to to not necessarily come to any agreement but find some common ground because it is so political politicalized um, it does add such great traction to this film, and ultimately, you you could probably say that Lenny Bruce, in in his infinite wisdom, let's say, and I think you could probably argue the fact that Jakob said, I think Lenny Bruce probably lost this battle. Even now, it's interesting to have those conversations. If if people can still do what Lenny Bruce said and, and did then in twenty twenty three, granted, there's not the bigger ramifications of being arrested. But there's interesting ramifications on a on a cultural social aspect of this cancellation. Nothing has really changed, but ultimately the goalposts have become a little bit different. If that makes sense, it it, it goes from a state problem, uh, a government problem, and a, to a social thing, which I, I found really interesting. But but to, to answer your point, 
I can imagine watching this in 1974 and, and, and finding it very interesting with what's happening. Obviously, it being set in the 60s as well. It's already got 10 years of its own history. The 80s would have been interesting in the 90s, but now it just, for me, I, I find it I, I, I find it quite toxic. I, don't, I know I, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole. I know I don't want to sort of fucking start okay, a fire toxic. What he's talking about or the, uh, the film? I, no, I, 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 I find the conversation. The conversation. Yeah. The, to- the, the film is fine. The film is brilliant. Is, yeah. Sorry, go on. Sorry, I, no. I think this is probably an, an, an early mainstream articulation of this. I'm thinking like comedians were doing it and there'd be your counterculture, you know, magazines and, you know, national lampoon and satirists and, and what have you. But I don't know if this conversation uh, exists many places and in, in mainstream before, before Lenny. It kind of looks like it probably isn't because he, like, if you think about it, like he's fighting pretty basic stuff. Yeah. <laughs> You know, like no, no, no. I suppose now we're desensitized. You know, like you, you like. Look, Bill Bear can just could could go and probably do like most of Lenny Bruce's stuff, and no one would bat an eye. Probably one bit he would probably have to take out because people would really not sit through the entirety of it be, before he makes this point because we were just like you're just hurling slurs, right? Like you know which bit I'm talking about. The one that you I can't agree. even also go and quote. I- you, you wouldn't be able to put it as a clip into this podcast because Spotify would take it down. <laughs> You know? yeah, but I don't doubt, kind of I don't doubt like. that Bill Burr has done that, though. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't doubt that Bill Burr has done and said those things. Like very, a lot of comedians have during a time, maybe the early two thousands, where they could get away with it. Albeit, I think it changes then when the guy Kramer out of Seinfeld he had an incident in there. So I, right. I, I suppose yeah. it, it, there has been a line drawn there for for a while. But I don't mean to interrupt. I could continue. No, that's okay. Oh, I mean, I kind of interrupted Randy anyway, so I'm just like, you, you oh, were I'm saying. Sorry, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think we're interrupting I, one another. Yeah, okay. Yeah, sorry. Um, no, the other thing that I was thinking about just while I was watching this too, I'm just thinking of the counterculture and it's it's interesting how, cause, see, I always find the issues with teens didn't really exist before World War II in a way. In, in, like we get these, you know, teen angst stories, and it's not a teen story, but I think that it's connected to the counterculture is that following World War II in... Do you know West, why? Western, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Because we shipped them to war. <laughs> but following why. World War II, just listen Turn to this. Turn 18. No, listen. Papers, so. <laughs> following World War II, enrollment in universities tripled from like 1945 to 1955. Uh, tripled because I, I think what you have in the fifties is, is in addition to the impact of World War II, you have you have advancements in technology, you have increased uh, you have increased free time, and I think you have a changing culture where people didn't grow up to just do what their parents did. <laughs> There's another factor <laughs> in, in this as well. Like th- think about World War II is a factor in here. If you think about sure. the global conflict. America is probably the only country in the world that essentially emerged unscathed yep. from the conflict, right? One of the one of the big players in the in the conflict that didn't really see its cities bombed, right? So and, and so we emerged in 1945 with a supercharged economy because the government has been plowing money into the economy for war purposes to build weaponry, build tanks and ships and planes and whatever. And all of a sudden, like the war comes to an end, but you still have this just train at max speed this economy is just 
just so what do you do you just re recalibrate to civilian purposes and and the american economy goes like through the ceiling so right get, and guess like all of a sudden like people's living standards just improve right all of a sudden instead of making tanks you're making cars <laughs> it's just you know oh and and tvs brilliant. so you've got mass media and all this and meanwhile in part because the Canada and the States have not been uh, touched by what's been going on in the rest of the world. Um, the entertainment infrastructure is still doing Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. So where I'm slowly going with this is that when all those 20 year olds go off to university and now they're educating their minds and you start to get a counterculture that's pushing back against the old guard. So I think this is where you've, you've got a really the, the divide between uh, you know, the academics and the left and the right, it's, it started, it's starting to crystallize just because of this era. And this is what we get. You see it on a small scale first. You see it, um, with things like, um, you know, National Lampoon, the magazine and, you know, clubs and comedians that are just doing shows. So Lenny Bruce and probably a few other guys like him that are, that are talking this talk and it's an academic conversation, really. Because he's saying, think about this. And for 300 years prior, no one's been thinking about the way we do things because the system's been on autopilot. But now things are different because we've got free time and we've got an educated uh, younger class that's uh, you know, going to university and questioning the grown-ups. But the people in power are still the 50-year-olds that like their 1950s Hollywood rom-coms and their Mickey Mouse and Donald Ducks. And that's what entertainment is. So for anyone else to push back on that is is crazy. And you've got Fosse who grew up, he, he was tap dancing as a 13 year old in, in burlesque clubs. Like, you know, so the burlesque clubs, I think that, that would be your, your hardcore type of environment back in the, back in the thirties. But this is where Bob Fosse sort of grew up. So he sort of grew up around sleaze and having to, pay the way for his family too, because, you know, he, he was working and he was bringing bread back to, to his, his parents. So, so he understands, I think that, you know, there's, there's this, there's this subculture that's always sort of been there, but now Lenny Bruce and others like him are allowing it to sort of move into this, the mainstream. And, and he can look at someone like Lenny Bruce as this guy from the subculture. And I think he probably admires him from, for, for this because he can connect it to his own background. This is sort of the sleazy side of entertainment. And I get him to a certain point. And I think there's another piece in here too, where uh, Fosse probably connects with Lenny Bruce, who is struggling as a creative f with his um, uh, work home balance because his life, Lenny Bruce's life is a mess. And I think that that's a big a connective piece for Bob Fosse in here as well, because he had all kinds of struggles in terms of, you know, making his relationships work and his relationship with his daughter and, and what have you. So I, I think that there's a lot of connective tissue between Lenny Bruce, just as a man in the entertainment field and Bob Fosse as a man in the entertainment field. And, and he feels, uh, you know, compelled to sort of tell a story of maybe someone who f he feels as a peer on, on that level as, opposed to maybe even just the vulgarity level uh, and pushing the envelope level, but also as this is just a guy that was trying to make a career and he had all these influences from, you know, drugs and, you know, bad people and show business 
show business was impacting him. So I think that he sees a lot of himself probably in the world of Lenny Bruce. Oh, I'll probably say that to add to this. He does in like in the film kind of shows it, right? Because the in the beginning you see Lenny Bruce's early acts when he's this sort of MC announcer and in, in some of this sort of strip club sort of scenario, right? And this act is terrible. He tells these one-liner jokes, right? He does impressions and no one laughs. Everyone's just stone cold. He's bombing for 15 minutes in the very beginning of the film, right? But he's doing stuff that's kind of like, you know, um, conventional. That conventional would be the stuff of the day. Yep, that yeah. would be the stuff of the day. And then he realizes, look, I, like he, he realizes, I, I, this, I don't want to do this. You know, and and, and Fosse intercuts this with his like really, really late stuff, like because you can see that he has a beard on, right? So that will be just before he died, his late sets, right? And they're like the movie opens with like Eleanor Roosevelt gave um, Chiang Kai shek a clap, the clap or something, <laughs> right? It's something like that, right? So he's very provocative, right? And he intercuts this with this guy putting a fake nose and doing like a. Like a, like a, like a, some kind of a Jewish impression of some kind of a, I think some, some kind of a comedian of, of its time. I don't know who, who he was I, trying to impersonate. I, I recognize the character, but I, I, I don't the know. Jimmy Durante or someone like that. I don't I, know. I forget who it is, but I know that's, yeah. Sort of a, yeah. So I, I don't know, but he, he doesn't land with the audiences. And I have a feeling, is this Fosse seeing himself in this? As in, like, look, I'm trying to be, because he, he's not right for the time, right? He, what you what you need to be as a comedian as a as a um as a creative you need to be a step ahead of the audience right like you need to be able to 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 show them what you need to like so that they can get on board with you and take and take take the audience on your journey with you right and i feel like when he's like on in sweet charity he's failing because he's essentially trying to adopt the mentality that he grew up with to the medium of film and he's and he's failing so he makes cabaret with in which he upsets the status quo he just tells you no I'm, we're not doing musicals that way anymore this is how we do it now do you like it yes step right in i've got a, a i've got a bunch of nazis at a fair singing a song for you you know that's kind of the environment that kind of drags people into the this, this world so this is how we like Bruce eventually gets his footing because people will flock to see him just to see what he says, you know, and because he, and then, then they will maybe just have a conversation in the car on the way home. Do you, do you actually think this, this we're hypocritical because like violence is everywhere, but you know, like when two people fuck, it's, it's for some reason it's, uh, it's un, unacceptable. And, but this is like an expression of love or whatever. And you, you kind of have these conversations that are very difficult and then there is no right answers in them anyway, but you, but you allow people to have conversations that were taboo bef- just yesterday. And I feel this is how he sees his connection to him right then he's bit, like, oh, yeah yeah no i'll just add to that if, if i could and i think there's a really lovely subtleness here into it's not just lenny bruce saying okay i want to go in this direction and it's it's all on him i think he's pushed away from the establishment because there's this uh fantastic uh small sequence of scenes with the sherman hart character which apparently is based on milton burrell yep but he was alive at the same t- at the time so he probably didn't want to have his name attached to this or something Yes. So, uh, and I remember Milton Berle. He was, yeah, anyway. So there's the sequence where Milton, uh, sorry, Milton Berle, no, Sherman Hart is meeting with Honey and uh, 
Honey and Lenny, and they're just sort of talking shop and they're talking about appearances on, uh, you know, late show TV and upcoming gigs and, and this type of thing. And Sherman is touching and, and caressing lightly uh, Honey's leg. And this is this is all in the edit and just these little inserts. And this is something I think that Fosse is discovering the power of cinema, what he can do with just the, like these little inserts. Um, which is probably another reason why he's he's getting sort of this second unit. Just, it's kind of just like get a little shot of that. Get a little shot of that. In Sweet Charity has this as well. Like he just Absolutely. does this sort of like cut into the tattoo, right? <laughs> just like yeah. just to make sure it's like, oh, he noticed. <laughs> you know, like he does this, right? <clears throat> yep. And this is what he's discovering. But in, in this sequence here, I think that, I think it's clear that Lenny is saying, this is an old boys club. I'm new kid on the block. And this older generation is not going to let me in on my own. So it's th- so when he's on stage and he says he's asked to apologize because he made a comment about I'm just taking my jacket off and it sounds like jack off and he, he feels like he should apologize for that. Sherman Hart feels he should apologize for that, but it was just a little something that you know got away from. Sort of like uh, if you listen to our conversation on the laundromat and we've got Balsack Canseco in there. <laughs> it's just something that sort of it's a little joke. It takes on a life of its own and. Lenny feels, why should I have to apologize in front of a, a, a big studio audience, an event, and a TV audience for that little slip up? Because the powers that be are telling me, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back. So he says, okay, I apologize and I piss on all of you. That's, that's his apology. And that's, that's him pushing back on the system. And I think that's really, really delicately done. And it's, it's really nicely handled with the language of cinema. And I just, and it's, it's really, it's character driven at the same time. I think it's a fantastic, a fantastic moment. Mm-hmm. Okay. What, what's, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> no, no. I'm just, uh, yeah. I, I, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm just saying that like, by the way, the scene has like shows you the imbalance of power as well. And that's sort of the brazen, um, uh, a boldness of this guy who just allows himself to just to physically touch um, honey, right? And, and and meanwhile, she's she's taking it as well, as in like, well, this is just uh, so she's being objectified, and she's only looking at at, at at Dustin Hoffman, just like giving him a look, as though like I'm not sure is she expecting him to to do something and say something. But he fails to do that, so he clearly just at at this point he at least he looks like um like he's um agreeing that he's the beta in this relationship between him and Sherman Hart, right? But then he kind of has his quote quote unquote revenge on stage because you know like this is where I have the power, I have the microphone, I can do whatever the hell I want in the moment. You can't stop me, right? So I I suppose there's yeah, there, it's a very complex sort of sort of piece of commentary you can't even you can't you can barely call it a story even right but um I, I just it shows you the like the power of the creative i suppose right but yeah i, I really i really enjoyed this like as much as you can enjoy this moment when this guy is sexually sexually harassing a woman right and she's taking but the the, the chemistry and dynamic in this scene is um like you i wouldn't never expect it from a guy who just a few short years ago he was doing like musicals, you know, with the ba 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 ba, you know, these sort of l- 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 like kicking and everything. Like you'd you'd never expect Fosse to kind of 
direct because this is a very extreme extremely well directed moment as well like you wouldn't expect it from it, it captures a minutia right like it really drills down yeah no I, I find that fascinating that that Fosse is able to do that walking off the stage as I said and when he was involved with film you know 15 years earlier it was you know your musicals and it's it's very much even a, a Broadway mentality to some of those old musicals so yeah anyway I, I just find Fosse's approach trying to sort of drill down in it's almost like a Cassavetes type of thing when he's got a keener eye where he really wants to get into these characters and and make you feel but he's also got this eye for composition and this eye this and also this sense of a beat the sense of a rhythm that editing has has a beat it's like he's he's tuned to the rhythm of a, of a scene and he finds that what musicals do with music he can do with editing um, what other elements do you find? Because I think there's a, you know, several that we could probably pick from. But just, what do you think stylistically? Well. Yeah, just to add yeah. to that though, it's a there's a very subtle scene in a film that isn't a very subtle film, if that makes any sense. It's it's again, it's um, it's it's just a highlight as well. It's Bob Fosse taking the time to 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 showcase a very subtle information, well, piece of information about all three characters at the same time. One who dares to put a hand on another on on a woman in front of the 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 person's boyfriend, the 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 woman in question not doing anything about it, and the man knowing that if he says anything about it means that he won't get his little starlight. It's it's a very subtle um, piece of you know maybe what one two three cut away, but it says a lot more about those three characters. And to be fair, I don't really think I've seen that in cabaret as much. I think cabaret is very much on the nose. Um, whereas this, there's there's definitely an evolution of a, of a director here, understanding um, what he's putting on screen, how what for for what reason, what it says about everybody else. Because because granted, I think there was moments like that in Cabaret where he, he placed the camera in the audience at the Cabaret Club to to sort of to to indulge in that diegetic moment of of, of the musical theatre. Yet here, he can't really do that. So there's there's, there's moments. Well, well, within reason, of course, within that particular sequence, he can't because he's not a musical. But there are moments here where he does indulge the audience to be a part of that. Always being b- back at the back of the club, seeing the smoke fill up the air, feeling it, let it be lived that people are there. You know, the, there's there's lack of energy at the beginning. Like Jakob said, the jokes don't land whatsoever. But when they start, that they start, they start really hitting. Where sort of we get into the first, third, second, first rows, small, really subtle details. Of uh, of blocking, um, placing the camera that feels head and shoulders above what what I saw in Cabaret, just very small things, but really really interesting and engaging pieces that he does here. Do you know what they look like to me as well? Like the, the one sort of connection, I immediately just because they are very very tight, like very because yes. he, he has these sort of camera setups where he, there's got a long zoom in the far corner of the of the room and these bunch of sort of cut in close-ups of people's it looks like club scenes and faces mm-hmm. you know it looks like like he's taking this out of like like pardon me for being a broken record because the guy was a pioneer for a reason it's it looks like he looks looks up to john cassavetes like i'm not even kidding you like I this sort of trying agree. to capture reality yeah, yeah, of yeah. this guy as opposed yeah. to yeah well yeah the, the, the and, one thing and I adding to his well, eye and his ear moment. for for the rhythm yeah no, I agree with that. Sorry, go ahead, Jack. The, the one, the one thing I, I was, I was slightly shocked with is that he decides to shoot this in monochrome 
Now, obviously, 1974, there's no real reason to do that rather than an artistic merit. Um, I don't think there could be any other way to do this in monochrome. I also think that excels the bleakness of this conversation, the bleakness of the character, and the bleakness of this narrative. Um, Once again, a very small, integral decision to do so, (laughs) um, to alienate quite a considerable amount of audience here as well, to shoot in black and white monochrome. but it, it it excels the experience to a degree where I bet there was I bet you really did have to regardless of the actual content here fight for that because this will be pushed in very few few ways with, with within a, a box office where I mean a, a two hour film about a man just self destructing himself discussing incredibly difficult conversations and shot in black and white didn't really have much going for it to to be fair but I, I'm glad that Bob Fosse really pushed that now. If I have to play devil's advocate here, the one thing I think that the monochrome, and this is where I might, might get into trouble water here, so don't, don't, don't t- anyone take this personally. The problem I find with the monochrome is that because he uses a certain framing device of it being non-linear, I, I personally, on a personal note, to make sure that those lines weren't crossed in terms of, of, of narratives, uh, present day and backstory, back and forth, back and forth, I do wish if he would have actually shot the present day in colour. I really do wish he would have done that, just to feel that there's a distinctive between two narratives, because there's a lot of cutbacks here. It's all it's all edited through that um, narrative of we we go back to actually Bob Fosse interviewing these people off screen, and they t- they in character they talk about it. That leads us into the next scene, so he uses it as an editing technique as well, because I think he's incredibly smart, very much like the diegetic nature. I'll, I will say it diegetic nature of the musical thing in Cabaret is that he doesn't allow those little bits of edits, which would be the musical number or the start and stop um, on camera uh, documentarian interviews to inter impede his flow and his narrative. And I love that. I love the fact that these things become integral to the proceedings. So he utilizes them and integrates them into proceedings to let the actual feature flow and not be the hindrance. But I do wish, and this is just a personal note, I don't think this is anywhere um, um, disparaging on the actual end product, but I think it would have just sufficed a little bit further if he'd have color graded um, very much in a weird way like Oppenheimer did just to just give them two distinctive narratives granted that's like in 1974 to be an incredibly highbrow avant-garde and even to get it on screen it'd have been it had been probably a little bit too much but I still think it would have helped that alas I think it flows really nice for two hours as well I think you could probably cut 10 minutes out of here if you were really taster I think there's about 10 minutes here you could be like gone but I think for an hour and 51 I think it is it's almost two hours uh, I never, th- mm-hmm. I never thought it was boring either. I think it flows really well, and it is primarily because of that edit, which I thought I thought saved Cabaret in the long run for me as well. There is really no moment here where I'm I was bored. Granted, that's due to the the content of the actual story itself, the narrative, but the way he edits it reminds me of Damien Chazelle in a way that not necessarily in Babylon, but the likes of La La Land on Whiplash in the fact that there are cues to get his editing techniques in. More so in Whiplash, I would say. Babylon is also is another one. But there's just so much flow here. And, and if this is not a, a fast-paced film by any means. It does take its time to develop. It does let itself um, sit there 
and roast. It, it really does want the flavour. Uh, that being said, I, I still think for two hours it, it, it is just like a really perfect ride. Really, really good edit, which is interesting considering his background as someone who's a choreographer as well, which is essentially like I can only put one and one together and think that everything that he wants to create wants to get on screen, but there's a fluidity, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a fastness in there. I suppose the faster you are with a, as good as technique as you are, uh, showcases better skill perhaps. So I feel like he takes that in on board and uses that to integrate his own edit, which I think is fabulous here. It's, it's undoubtedly the film's saving grace. I th- and I, 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 I don't doubt that I'm going to mention that in the, the other two films that we're going to talk about with Bob Fosse down the road. I feel like it's an integral aspect of his, of his cinematic um, um, operandi. Um but that was there just two things in the monochrome I thought was interesting in the edit. I think they were part and parcel perfectly. Mm-hmm. On the black and white, I'll, I'll just I'll say this. I believe in my heart of hearts that the black and white choice is Bob Fosse saying, I want to distance myself from musicals and Ooh, I want okay. people to see this as as an art film and I want this I want the <laughs> I want this to have a very specific identity. And I, I honestly I, I feel that's probably the choice. I don't know, of course, but um like in that way it fits like for me yeah, there's also i mean I, again i don't know there may be some kind of a documentary or a book that will probably just shed some more light on this there could be a, just a technical reason for a lot of it because a lot of this footage a lot of the film takes place in nightclubs and it's way in the 70s i think this is something that we had in some conversations with i think um like some of the Cassavetes conversations, I think, with I think just a tangential conversation about Elaine May's um, Mikey and Nikki about, or maybe maybe not even maybe on the killing of the Chinese bookie, where people were telling him it's just like he can't expose the color film in certain way um, in low light situations, right? So he'd have to artificially bring in light to to a situation where a filmmaker makes an active choice to retain the realism right so he shoots uh, shoots this let's just say the standard routine as it is and if you do it in color in the sort of dimly lit nightclub you may not get much but then again i think if you do it in monochrome and you develop in monochrome then you you're able to push it a bit harder and you can get more of a hit in terms of how much light you capture right on screen so there may be just a technical thing that he he would have to shoot his nightclub scenes in monochrome and then if he just moves between color and 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 white and and black and white just because of these sort of technical reasons it would make no sense so you would have to just make these sort of decisions like you know color coded like Soderbergh would do uh to just make sure that this is you no know, black and white is in the past this is this sepia is here and whatever and in, in, in which case it would just make make it a little bit different um, and by the way, on, on the editing, I'll probably say like I see more of a Soderbergh sort of touch, especially how he separates sound from 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 the visual, and he will just like clearly just put sound from a scene that just about to happen in three seconds over top of a visual that's from somewhere else. That's something that Soderbergh the, has been doing a lot. Yeah, the, right? the facial hair to uh, introduce <clears throat> a flashback—that's something we saw in Out of Sight, for instance. So I was thinking yeah. that as well. So yeah, so I'm yeah, and like. Just to just to quickly just I don't want to start a fight, but I just feel like Chazelle takes his editing n- notes from like Darren Aronofsky <laughs> more more than anybody else. Um, but it's not a dig against anyone, but that's just kind of how how I've always seen him. But yeah, I will say that 
I don't mind necessarily that this is entirely in monochrome. I feel like this maybe separates himself. He separates himself from from the musical, but maybe even adds a little bit of a touch of elevation. As in, like people will take this movie a little bit serious and in a bit as something a bit more real if it's black and white. Just as simple mm-hmm. as that. If Here's they, a question too. Sorry, sorry. No, it's just, I'm just saying like there's this. There could be this, and you know, just. Cutting this apart and uh, and then juggling these bits of uh, of story um, doesn't bother me either because like Godard in in 1963 never cared whether people would get that something is in the past or something is in the future you know like he would still, it would still be black and white so and you, you're you're like he just trusts the audience is smart enough to figure out what's where you know yeah so, I, I think yeah. too that um, black and white is is often used. Uh, to to capture documentary footage, to capture um, you know newsreel footage, I think at, at the time too. Like I, I think that if uh, I'm, I'm thinking too, I know there's a lot of color. Technically, footage. do you know why? Because it's easier to develop in low light situations when you have just a camera on your shoulder and you're in a battlefield. Like no one, like you're you're gonna get something out of it. Is what I'm yeah, saying. I I think that's I think <laughs> I think it is a thing going to the era. There certainly is color footage from, uh, you know, Vietnam for for instance, mm-hmm. or it looks uh, dog civil shit. civil <laughs> civil unrest as well that people started to see in the the news with uh, was it the Jamestown shooting in 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 the states? I think a lot of that footage is is black and white. So where I'm going with that is that I, I think that when he does the interviews, it has a bit of an impact of creating a. a that naturalism and breaking down that fourth wall a little further, you know, to talk to, to talk to his subjects when he's talking to the, the agent in the future and when he's talking to honey in the, in the future about, you know, reminiscing. And that, that is Bob Fosse's voice is the interviewer too, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Here, here's a question. And this is, a, this is a line actually out of uh, Fosse Verdon, but it's an interesting piece might, might actually come up again if we talk about, when we talk about Star 80 and, and all that jazz, but I'll mention it here too. So Patty Chayefsky, uh, three-time Oscar winner, Network Hospital, Marty. So his character in Fosse Verdon, he questions Fosse on his characters and he says, all of your protagonists suck, basically, because they never change. And that's why they're fundamentally flawed. You know, so all of Fosse's protagonists, they... And we even commented on this about Sally, right? Like she's basically the same or she's the same or she's she's in a loop or, or doesn't really uh, change too much. How does Fosse get away with that here? Because I suppose that's true. Like he doesn't necessarily change or does he? Is that is that a comment worthy to uh, discuss Lenny? I think he changes immediately, right? Like he, he goes from this sort of tame and safe and, um, and conventional comedian into becoming, you know, Dave Chappelle of his time, <laughs> so it changes, right? Like, but I think this—it's probably a fair, com, fair com piece of criticism to make. But I think you have to always remember that character is not the entire film, because say Sally may not be changing, but the world around the, these characters is changing. So mm-hmm. something there's, and it's part of the conversation. And I feel like maybe this is also Fosse's little demon, right? That he's fighting against as in like how do i stay ahead of the curve in this sort of shifting landscape of the world i'm in right so because he sees the world changing around him like you know like you can't make golden age musicals now because they bomb so he sees that you know like i can't be a 
an immovable object in a uh, in a fluid universe. So he probably just I don't know, acts this out in, in, through his characters who refuse to change as the world changes around them and they're just caught, caught and blindsided and caught with their pants down Well, when they realize that, you know, that they can't do certain things or they sh- they have to uh, adjust to do certain things. Like this will be a conversation in all that jazz, I suppose, right? Yeah, that's kind mm-hmm. of how I see it, at least. And I, I guess because I thought a lot about this because I usually don't like biopics. I think they're very risky because if you're just if you're just basing your movie on charting the events of some person's life, then what happens is you're bound to those events and they may or may not follow a traditional story arc or uh, it's just very risky. You know, what was the uh, Nelson mm. Mandela film with Idris Elba? I, I thought that more was specifically there were two, I think one, one with Morgan Freeman as well, right? That's it. That's in. Yeah. Francis. Let's, and I wouldn't call that a biopic because it's about a, an, an event, right? But if you if you just commit to following a life, then I, I find that risky, and I usually don't like them because I'm not following the story arc. And I think that Fosse is getting away with just following this guy's life because he's disconnecting himself from the conventions of a story arc that, you know, we just sort of follow the events in a linear fashion. You got a rising action and a climax at the end and, you know, a denouement after. And, and I think that this, this style, this, this citizen Kane thing of having interviews reflecting upon someone's life, this just throws the audience into a number of these little episodes. And Lenny ends up being a sum of its part, uh, some of its parts, as opposed to, you know, being a traditional story arc that you're you're following along, and I think in that sense, it's it's maybe more of a verite or documentary style in the, in the storytelling, and it helps break down the fourth wall, and it's a little bit more immersive. So I think that if I had to say, this is probably one of my my favorite biopics, just in terms of following multiple periods of someone's life. Uh, this this is does a, a tremendous job in in my mind, and, and a lot of films sort of crack just- the bed in that regard. You just upset like a billion people who just think Oppenheimer is the uh, the best biopic ever. But you know, who am I, I to don't, talk? Um, I don't quite understand the, <laughs> the objection to say that uh, someone said that Bob Fosse's characters don't grow. The, they don't change. They don't I change. Find that, I find they don't that learn anything in the final act. But I, I, don't, I don't know if that's just a question of, about Bob Fosse's characters. But he like learns how much heroin is too much. Yeah, well, also that he doesn't learn anything, then does it? Like that, but then in that we learn that he doesn't learn anything. I think that this is this is a, a critique that comes up quite a lot now in modern day. And I think I think I've used it to to a certain occasion where I think that if a character's story constructs itself where it doesn't go, it doesn't evolve the character thing, that that's justified to have the, that complaint. But the whole point of 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 Bob Fosse's Lenny Bruce character here is that he doesn't change. He doesn't he doesn't learn anything. It's the irony of the character. The character believes himself to be this astute martyr for his cause about free speech. And then quite I can't quite understand why he's getting himself into these predicaments, but also can't see the bigger picture of his wife uh, and his child um, and, and see a, a bigger picture of, of if, if he could play it s- simple, then he could then he could he could make thousands of dollars a week by coming mm-hmm. out and telling the masses what they want to hear. That's the whole point of the film. So again, I know I know we're just putting one on one together and getting three here. I, I, I appreciate that, but I do think it's interesting to sort of you uh, for whoever used that critique. It's interesting when Fantastic. I don't feel it's yeah, I don't feel it's, it's sort of 
even fair to to justify it here. Even in cabaret, it's the the whole point about did uh, did they learn anything? Well, there's a whole point of what Bob Fosse is trying to do with these characters is that they're narrow minded. They don't learn anything. They're struck with the they're struck and stuck in the predicament that they've created themselves. If and I think this is what Fosse's argument back would be. Yeah, I like, agree. Well, I, I there's nothing this. wrong with that. It's it's all about what you do with the character in, in in question. If they don't if they don't evolve or learn anything, and you can justify that within the thematic or the the, the picture itself, then well, yeah, you know. There's look for like as far as like cabaret or anything else goes in Fosse's sort of storytelling, I still will stand by with by the fact that he it it's part of the point that these people don't change. Yes, um, but then. Like, what will be the prescription? Like, if, if Paddy Trajewski goes and is like, l- looks at Lenny and says, like, I don't like your characters, they don't change. Like, what will be the prescription? Just just alter the course of history and just, like, you know, like, let's let's just make him win the case. Or <laughs> so he, or maybe just make him learn a lesson, not kill himself. Like, what's the, what's the way out of this? Because I think maybe some people probably just refuse to understand that life isn't Hollywood. You know, just people. Some mm-hmm. people don't have these sort of sweeping, perfectly engineered, dramatic arcs in their lives. Sometimes people are stuck in their mindsets and they refuse to budge. Right? This guy was, as you said, like he was a martyr, and he and he made this his obsession, his 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 mission to um, to bang his head against the wall, hoping the wall would give in first. It did <laughs> yes. not. Right? Yeah. So that's kind of. And and then you you find him on like on the floor with his just skull cracked open as he realized that you know like human bone is nothing in comparison to brick you know that's kind of what it is. People just we're we're conditioned to think that you know there's gonna be a prince charming at the end of a love of like of in your own love life there's gonna be this perfect the one or something's or that your life will matter in some way that you're gonna accomplish some feat of strength maybe in your life because there is a purpose to your existence look there isn't very unlikely you'll change the world our purpose on this on on this planet is to reproduce that's kind of that's it that's that's all there is you know have fun otherwise <laughs> so like people who just are going crazy like, oh, these people don't change like most people don't change like don't you, don't you have friends who just you know like you you meet with them like 25 years after you've last seen them and just like they're just as they used to be like 30 years ago or whatever when they were like 15 or whatever it's like that's just life mr chayevsky get jesus get over yourself yeah um <laughs> I, I love it, Jakob. And I think this is in part the... <laughs> this is it. Uh, well, this is the conversation, <laughs> I think, that New Hollywood... This is this is the conversation New Hollywood is pushing back, that like the Cassavetes and the Friedkins and, and Fosse... Is but, like, but like critics Our storytelling like, can be different. Oh, well, there you go. Like the critics, uh, it, it takes like, them no, 25 years to catch up. Like, get to the point already. Like, like why don't we... Why don't you get to the point? Just like, because people sometimes have to spend time to flesh out their opinions. And then it's the, it's my pleasure as a filmmaker, says John Cassavetes, to capture this, okay? The yeah, little problems. Note, people don't have big problems. People have small problems. On that note, Bob, Bob I've critics. read... In, an it's probably in K.O. Bob, you hated this, didn't you, right? Yeah, I, I've uh, I, I don't think I dug... I've read an interview with Bob Fawcett and he, 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 even, he even goes to this and says that... After Cabaret and Lena, um, uh, critics told him that they, he needs to make a more personal film. So he made all that jazz, 
and they were like, and he, he said that when it was released, they all said that he's he's indulging within himself too much. And he's like, how do I win? How, how I think it, I paraphrase him. But he's like, how how do I win? How how do I how do I dissect that? And it is true. I think I think that new way of Hollywood is is not making the A B C atypical uh, construct of a character going from one thing to another. I think it's not even a stagnation of character. It's just that. Like like Jakob said, this is not these are not Disney movies anymore. These are these are films. It's like um, Willard in in Apocalypse Now. That is a trajectory. But does he really learn anything from the beginning to the end? Not really. He he, he perhaps it's a reflection of himself, and he's seen a lot of horrible things. But he doesn't have any resonation with the, the actual war itself at the beginning. He's a drunk. He he, he beats himself up. He, he doesn't understand what he's fighting for. And at the end. He knows exactly the same outcome, but he's seen a lot more. There's there's a different construct to to how a character gets from A to B to C within these films. You know, it's not like Sidney Lumet's The Verdict, where Paul Newman starts as a pisshead and ends not as a pisshead. <laughs> it's a little bit more more tangible in the question of being more human, being more organic. In that those 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 journeys are not as as predictable and easier as, as as a critic would surmise it to be you know it's it's the age-old question of you know what why couldn't um lenny bruce see the wood for the trees it's because he's a human being and he saw something that was bigger than himself and latched himself onto it which is probably like human nature to begin with he's also a manic depressive he was also a drug addict there's a lot more to, to suggest there but i also think it's that like, like jacob and you said it, it's also a 1970s thing where people are pushing back you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I, I just found a passage from paul and kale's review and that review is from 2006 so she should have known better she gave it two and a half out of five the monochrome photography and pseudo-documentary um, interpolations can't disguise the basic Harold Robbins, Robbins material and the good performances Hoffman and Perrin stand little chance against Fosse's withering, withering direction. The subject matter needs far defter psychological handling than it gets. Ooh. I'm telling you, like, Paul and Kale, she was, like, unless this is, like, she would have loved Marvel movies. Like, I'm telling you. <laughs> Because it's like it's simple A to B to C to D. She loves it because it's it keeps it keeps her engaged. She's not falling asleep. Like holy shit! Like because she sees a movie like this that's contemplative in a way, or it's just de- deals with people's dramas that maybe are not larger than life. They're just life, and she can't get over the fact that it's it bores her. She goes to the cinema to to escape. She goes like, I'm not entertained. Ugh. Why are these people fighting over dinner? Yeah. Ugh. It's just... Fuck, Jesus, I hate this woman so much. Well, we talked Fuck about this me. with with Gloria. Is <gasps> Sign that, up to our Patreon. <laughs> yes, because we talk about this quite a bit with the Gloria conversation, is that critics were not used to seeing the envelope pushing and just these, these different perspectives and story unfolding in non-traditional ways. Uh, and so it, it took... Uh, film critics some 15 20 years to get with the program so to speak and some some even didn't get with the program yeah. he'll be just like ah that's not interesting like why are you not, why don't why can't you get to the point john i mean at this point i'm just thinking like remember that time when john casavetes um he was uh, in a taxi 
together with Paul and Kel and you threw her purse and her shoes out of the window and then you told the taxi they gave they gave the taxi driver a hundred bucks to drive faster. <laughs> <laughs> fucking fucking hey. <laughs> <laughs> If, um, okay. if I may, just digress. She deserved yeah, it. Um, she deserved every yeah. bit of this this mistreatment. Um, Go ahead, the, the, the one thing which if I remember about Cabaret we discussed is that I found that it wasn't immersive enough with the dynam- dynamic of characters. I didn't think there was enough romantic blossom there. Um, I'm glad to report that this suffices on those criticisms of cabaret was ultimately a one-off or was designed to be there is a sensual nature to this film which is genuinely gorgeous now there there is a sequence of a menager toi um which which mm-hmm. which is constructed within the film to be quite unnerving and quite um uncomfortable yet how bob fossey crafts it with it just in black and white as well with touch with caress of a lip with with um hand over breast over skin just having the cameras just situate itself and just there's absolutely no noise through it at all it's just silence it's silence. probably yeah it was absolutely beautiful and granted it, it, it makes it even more unnerving um with with how th- that scene ultimately devises itself and then as a, a finality to it, it's very, very, a very difficult sequence to watch. But the actual um, set piece itself, the sensuality through that is utterly gorgeous. And it's just the one thing I wanted to see in Cabaret if he would evolve that. And, and uh, God forbid, mm-hmm. he knocked that out of the park. That sequence itself is just gorgeous. The hand over, uh, the, sorry, the finger over the lip. It's ever so slow. It's ever so self indulgent, but just so emotive and impactful and then made probably even more um uh, poignant and, and harrowing due to how then then it then it, it, it goes up and then comes down and it's been made into a a thing where lenny bruce weaponizes it and it sort of with that horrible power dynamic and, and um the the, the the gaslighting he does um again this just the sequence itself incredibly sensual but the deeper ramifications of it how it's been constructed and and to invest in these characters and then to 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 have the result it's like a short film within itself it just goes to show that again bob fosser incredibly at devising these small integral pieces that have murmurs and layers and ripples throughout the film as well an incredibly uh, rich type of director i found just more things that evolve him from what i thought cabaret was was going to be the cabaret is considered sort of like the magnum opus albeit that you could probably say that all that jazz is more so the personal magnum opus of himself but this was always the one that was like lost i never knew bob fossey made this watching it now and seeing all these small wonderful subtle details it's only two years on from Cabaret, it feels like a, a, a thousand years difference. There's such a different type of aesthetic and style influence here. It's all it's so engaging. It's so well shot, well executed. The evolution's crazy for a two year difference. I don't think you can. Well, there's probably loads of examples, but none come to mind where you see a two year difference of a of a director oh, just going like well, that doesn't feel. Well, like one the same experiences person. the evolution from Sweet Charity to Cabaret. Yeah, well, that, that's probably another one. Of, yeah. <laughs> I'd probably be even but more shocked. Glad you mentioned that, Jack. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned this this moment, Jack, because um, 
it's a big moment for me in terms of sort of the, the character discussions with both Honey Bruce and Lenny Bruce, because I think this is the moment that their relationship falls apart. Because right before this moment you're talking about, there's a scene where they're lying in bed and you see a close up of Honey and you you hear meek Lenny Bruce, oh, come on, we should do it. Come on, don't you love me? Or, or whatever it is. And then you realize He's, he's asking, we, we need to have a threesome. We should do it. And this is a woman whose whole career as a stripper and exotic dancer, she's been sexualized and she knows her role, but that's her professional existence. And she finally has found this love, someone who treats her like, you know, a woman and, you know, and treats her like a princess and sends flowers to her uh, room. And, you know, she's, she's got this passion and this love for this guy and this relationship because it's nothing like the objectification that she gets in her professional realm. And now what happens just in this moment, it's like a light switch going off or on, depending on how you look at it. It's just, it's all changed because Lenny Bruce just wants her for the sexual gratification. And it's, it's, it's sort of crushing and it is so delicately handled. But I think that this is the turning point in the relationship. It's all downhill from mm-hmm. there her descent into drugs and her adult life becoming a, a mess and, you know, and, and Lenny Bruce is sort of, you know, moving on to, to other things as well, you know, including drugs and, uh, you know, attitudes that he's developing for his career and whatever, but it's a beautiful and while they have a child as well. Just saying. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Ab- <clears throat> absolutely. Um, how do you pre Kramer versus Kramer feeding scene, by the way, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, good point. Um, what, what do you guys think now, having watched a couple uh, films, what do you guys think of how Fosse works with his actresses, maybe his actors in general, but I think Honey Bruce and, and Valerie Perrin here might is, might make for an interesting discussion. I, I, well, he, personally, I think that it's a fantastic performance. Yeah. He's on record as saying that Honey Bruce here is the best actress he's ever worked with. Now, Obviously, I've only seen Cabaret, and I've, I've got Liza Minnelli to deal with. Um, I've got to, I've yet to see Star Eighter, which will be coming up next. I've also yet to see all that jazz. So I'll I'll try to limit my viewpoint for the two films. But Liza Minnelli is playing on on a, on a role she knows very well in the sense of of going for stardom, daughter of Judy Garland. She'll have some form of 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 emotive investment that she can bring out to that character. Um, this is a different ball game entirely. This is putting on screen heart, blood, sweat, and tears. And I think this is this is a role that without Honey Bruce, uh, uh, the, sorry, the character of Honey Bruce, I don't think the, <coughs> the performance Perrin, is yeah. yeah. <laughs> Honey, Honey Bruce, yeah. Obviously, she, she'd obviously have some uh, thing to do with it. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a performance. But It's a real um, person, so, you know, I suppose yeah, you're yeah. right. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think this does not have the... Uh, emotive core it doesn't have the function of showcasing how terrible he is also the terrible environment that she's in but it doesn't also show the vulnerability that he's going through it doesn't show the well essentially what he's fighting for in in a sense it doesn't show that she is undoubtedly an aspect of his life with if he wouldn't accept it or not due to his material based on on these living situations that he's had with her she is a core instrumental character within this film which happens to be executed wonderfully by an actress who can just showcase tone out to an outstanding fashion 
the sequence where she's talking about like being interviewed by Bob Foster and she sort of like just breaks down. And then, you know, it's just, there are small, very tender moments that she can showcase and she doesn't rely on anybody else around her either. She's not, she, there's very few sequences where they're together, where she has to, or, or vice versa, they get to play off each other. They're very much removed in, 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 very, in a very interesting way also, where she can, she can have this emotive development, and so can he. But she is outstanding here. I don't think it's a comparison really with Manella. I think they're two different beasts entirely, but I, I think he's probably right. She is outstanding here. She's the linchpin of this film. Mm-hmm. I mean, Minelli is, a, is an interesting comp- comparison because Minelli is kind of well aware that she's in, um, she's, she's working for a stage director. So, and she's supposed to be larger than life. So she acts la- as though she was in a musical, right? So she has these sort of big gestures and, and, and Fosse kind of films her appropriately for this, I suppose. In here, it like it's a very new wave in a way because Valerie Perrin's always kind of like in the corner of the frame, when, especially when she's interviewed. Like the, the camera's at a weird angle. Um, so she's de-glamorized. She just looks like a regular person. It just helps as well that, you know, like regular people are kind of beautiful, you know? So you, because you just, you strip away the Hollywood, like these people, like, all of a sudden like the the dangerous like what if these people are just average yeah average people are can be pretty too jesus get o- get over yourselves yeah it, ma- it makes it more immersive like and tragic as well seeing the honesty yeah. on screen that there's there's someone who obviously who's looks and yeah. sounds just like an average joe i think there's there's a there's a wonderful sort of um investment there an immersive um attribute it has yeah undoubtedly but then he, yeah, bang on. he, he also like he also films films her in, in the stripping scenes as though she wasn't like all that jazz. So he kind of, in, in a way, he separates that there's there's Honey Bruce, the performer, the stripper, and Honey Bruce, the uh, the wife, the mother, the uh, troubled woman who's trying to get her shit together and she's failing, right? Uh, and it, it's honestly fascinating because just by tweaking how how he positions the camera, Fossey is just telling you that he's he's operating in a reality, and he's also well aware of when of when he's not. Right, there are these brief moments where he's on stage and he wants you to be on stage in the sort of world of the strip or whatever, in the sleaze sort of grimy world of the strip club, whatever, with these people somewhere. But but oh but. At the same time, he he knows how to do, how to use the camera to evoke both. It's he's fascinating in that way. Yeah, coming from a guy who's just again golden age Broadway director, you know. Yeah. One thing I would add to this that I that I feel is is here is that Fosse loves women. I think he has a great deal of respect for women. Mm. I think he has a great even. Even though he was a womanizer, but I think that's that- exactly what I want to say. Like he loves <laughs> yeah. women and whatever. It's just like he, like when you see Dustin Hoffman picking a, a just some, like I don't know this this nurse in the hospital after the car accident and just gets her phone number or something like this with his wife in front of them. And this, honestly, I think, like the, I think this like, is, that's this Fosse. is, Foss, this is Fosse's penance. <laughs> like, this is him dealing with his guilt because this is his own behavior. But in terms of what we see on film, I think he's very loving of his female characters and he, he, he puts Liza Minnelli in a position where she looks amazing and that, uh, he puts and uses a Valerie Perrin and he coaxes a performance out of her, even though 
was probably brutal to deal with him and do every stupid take 30 times or whatever. But he's... No, he's do better. Do better, <laughs> yeah. He really loves these characters <sighs> and he wants his actresses to succeed within them. And I, I think that's sort of interesting too for, for the era and especially the era that he's coming out of. Um, so anyway, I, I think that that's, that's a thing and it's interesting to see that in here. And, and yeah, I think Valerie Perrin is amazing. She's she's both, you know, she she is sexualized in some of the scenes just as that's her role and she does a great job with that. But she's also, yeah, a very real person and she's the the real wife in the flashbacks but she's just she's a real person like she helps break down that fourth wall for those interview scenes like i think it's really really special performance okay um all right what do you guys think of the stand-up bits in so far as the structure of the film and how they're used um and just maybe what my thinking in asking this is that i see a little bit of a parallel to how he uh, uses the musical bits in Cabaret as that these stand-up bits are a bit of a Greek chorus which introduce the the next dramatic episode because he does a stand-up bit about lesbians and then that turns into the <laughs> menage a trois thing. And uh, anyway, like these moments are in there as little pacing separators as just sort of your uh, first page of a chapter type of thing in a book as it sort of stands out. And he, he's using this uh, structurally as part of his edit and and part of what he's achieving with his pacing. What do you guys think of these bits in terms of how they're used? I was going to say, by all accounts, they're actually meant to be quite authentic, aren't they? They're, they're meant to be shot organically as him going into a nightclub in the middle of bumfuck nowhere and actually having these conversations and bombing naturally. And then and then the, the actual, when Lenny Bruce gets quite famous and Dustin Hoffman's playing it that, that way, that's actually just recycled uh, bit by bit, um, non non organically, uh, and then towards the end when he's in the rowing boat, it's like almost um, word by word. Um, I think I think weirdly, in a very strange way for me, these sequences, if not done right as they are in the film, would be probably where this film begins to drown in itself. Because I think, for, on a, on a personal note, to watch cringe or to watch someone essentially drown on screen or, and die on screen like that. Um, I find that on a, on a personal note very difficult to watch. It's I, I find it terrifying. I have an, an issue watching theatre because of that. I've only I, I've very watched very few theatre performances live purely because I find that it being live and anything can happen and also... You know, Do we you have were like panic attacks or not, not panic attacks. I just find it unnerving. Yeah, I'm in the background. Like there's like a, there's an actor in there. Like, what if I what if, what if I boo? What if? <laughs> no, no, not nothing. Like, I just I just find it very uncomfortable to to bear witness. So even when it's on film, I still find it quite jarring. Nevertheless, obviously, it's it 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 is a part of his character trait. It's also part of the character evolution. So it, it feels very organic. I think they've executed very well. I think you, at the beginning, you get that moral, well, not moral control, but you get that sort of idea of set design, uh, very, very um, black and white band in the background, very, uh, very rigid, very rudimentary. No one really there. They often cut back and forth of everyone dressed up, very different events. And then when you further see the evolution, he dresses down, 
has the beard. He's much more natural. The smoke in 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 the uh, just filtering up. It comes back to an audience who are very much more trendy, very much younger. So that there are time sequences and time stamps here to suggest what year it is, how the cultural thing with with comedy is going, how Lenny Bruce's relationship uh, with the audience is going. I think all of them are executed quite well, and they also feel like they're working on multiple different levels for the for the reasons I just I just provided. I think they're brilliant. I think they're, they're very engaging. They also feel utilized in the edit, very much like the docu- documentarian um, framing is used to cut back and forth into um, thoughts and feelings, uh, or genuine, almost like exposition, really. Um, in a strange way, to, to, to working in tangent with actually how the comedy the comedy set works in the talking about real things that influence oneself, then actually seeing the influence in, 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 in that reality on screen, I think it's a really genius idea to do. Never feels like the film s- uh, slows down, although when it does, it's purposeful. Um, yeah, I was I was shocked that they worked as as much as they did for me in in a, in a very positive way. And it's always it's always a danger. That the actor you're you're hiring to do the bit to do the bit of the stand up comedian that they don't have a funny mm-hmm. bone in them, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Like they just <laughs> like I suppose. But then again, you're getting Dustin Hoffman. And apparently, Al Pacino was in the running, and that's apparently his continuing one major regret that he turned down the role of Lenny Bruce. Um. <laughs> so, but you you could imagine. Yeah, this 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 role going to someone who doesn't really know how to embody this character and actually sell these jokes, the way he the way Dustin Hoffman sells them, or unnerve the audience in the same way that probably Lenny Bruce did, and then eventually go into like a full on on Andy Kaufman where he's reciting his yeah. transcripts of his trials, <laughs> <laughs> and it's still kind of sort of fascinating, you know. So uh, I don't know, like I, I really like this movie comes alive in these moments because it not only that it just, I suppose, it, yeah, you're Randy, you're right when you're saying that it, they serve the purpose of what a, what a song and a music would be that as in just like relaying some of the elements of the plot and then just, um, advancing the story along without necessarily mm-hmm. just showing you the story. Right. Uh, but oh, but at, at the same time, they're, they're equally advancing the thematic conversation, which they tell their more, own story. Because you yeah. see his his career descend through them as well. Yeah. Exactly, and then just as he's like, you, you can see that because you know, this is, there's his life, his marriage, and everything, uh, kind of just punctuated in there. But there's also his descent into madness, and then and and how he becomes progressively more entrenched, and uh, and almost, like very bellicose in his in his in his comedy that he like he. Uh, shows it's like there's the fuzz in the audience like look like Mount Rushmore or something right? uh, and and then he he taunts them and he becomes more sort of you know like let's just say audacious in his in his uh, in his sort of performance and I have a feeling like Dustin Hoffman really kind of deserved an Oscar for this if anything but then again you can only give one and I have a feeling like, what, who who did, did De Niro get it then uh, that was um, De Niro was supporting actor I I sort of forget who won in 74. Oh, okay. you, you look that up. I'll just mention one thing I thought about because it just, as his bits would always correspond with what would follow. And I thought that was just so clever. I, I was thinking to myself, you know what? This is Not how. Tony who won? Harry and Tonto. Oh, okay. Oh, so 
So do you know who who got the uh, Oscar? Oh, I don't have it on my um on on my on my board anymore because I substituted for some George C. Scott. But you know, like imagine Friedkin saying, "Who gives a shit?" <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, I was thinking that the the series Seinfeld punctuates its episodes in exactly the same fashion, where they would put in a Seinfeld bit. Lenny was, was a legend because he was a legend, and I, I can't I can't help but think like. This, this comes right from Lenny. Like, like Lenny Bruce, like died a de- a very undignified death on the on the on the floor of his bathroom, so that George Carlin could could go on and bra- blaze the trail for Eddie Murphy and then for Chappelle's and Bill Bears and all these. Like this, he, this guy's a legend. Yeah. Um, yeah. And on just that, on that I don't note, think I really have anything else. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I just I, this is this is going to be a bit of a, a left field one, right? But you know, there's the sequences when he's in the club and he's making like, he's bombing, right? I don't know if you, you two, do you two know? I, I the think ending do, bombing or the beginning bombing? No, 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 bombing? The, the beginning bombing. Or, or, no, the ending bombing when he's sort of purposely doing it. Have you, you guys ever listened to Andrew Dice Clay's really famous album where he purposely goes on, like on a Tuesday um, at one o'clock in the morning to go to the comedy show, records it. It's like when, when comedy died or something like that. Um he purposely bombs, and it's one of the most fascinating comedic two hours I've, I've, I've ever listened to because he goes in there and he's got five people, and he's talking about like fucking uh, fucking this guy's girlfriend who's sat next to her. What did he get? Um, what did he get her for uh, Christmas like that? Um, like uh, I, I talking about his comb and talking about like coming inside of it. Like he, he's ailing at every single person in the audience, and he's purposely doing it to see if they'll laugh and get a reaction. And that the psyche there is brilliant. It always reminds me of. Um, granted, this is like twenty years ahead of of um, of, of Lenny, the, the, the film itself. But I can't but help help but think that he's influenced by Lenny Bruce in a sense of. I mean, all modern comedy mm-hmm. is in a way, but that purposely bombing, like like constructing a, a, a comedic set without any comedy, just right, uh, railing off the uh, the indictment he's got, the state indictment for uh, gross gross misconduct. If anyone is out there, I suggest listening to the Andrew Dice Clay thing as well because it's fucking fascinating. But, all, but, but that's but, kind of what Andy Kaufman did. Like he just went on stage one day and then he read the the Great Gatsby to people. You know, Andrew Kaufman's an interesting connection. Yes, yeah, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yes, an interesting person as well. I don't, I don't, I don't yeah. find that essentially. I think that's like really e- beginning era of cringe comedy as well for me because Andrew Dice Clay's mm-hmm. not cringe. There's like a really interesting. <laughs> background then he, he's incredibly funny as well i think, I think the andrew dice plays like very much <laughs> comedic in a sense that like he will alienate everybody but 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 he's, he's quite funny doing it whereas andy corpin for me is like trying to be highbrow and, and just not quite getting it whereas lenny bruce is a mixture of the both there's highbrow comedy but also s- satirical thing behind it made by poignant social commentary um, again, but but that that last like, scene when he's bombing on, like implied on purpose, just to try and like make a point. Really interesting. It just reminded me of the Andrew Dice Clay thing. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else on your guys' scanners? Just you know, I'm I'm looking at the final shot of this film. I'm just thinking to myself, this movie was definitely not sponsored by Manscaped.com. <laughs> uh, no, and you know what? <laughs> <laughs> Probably worth mentioning that's actually Lenny Bruce. That's yeah. that's not because yeah. it didn't look that's, like Dustin Hoffman. It's a, 
it's a corpse it's a corpse photo jesus so I mean, yeah this, it, it, it is kind of gonna come back soon but yeah <laughs> yeah it's gonna come up again okay well let's head into our final thoughts and uh yeah thank you both for that was a great chat but let's wrap it up jack what are your final sentiments on I, I I just said in my opening, I always un, I always go in and underestimate Dustin Hoffman, and it's interesting to sort of go from this and going to have a look at more of his like Marathon Man and, and Midnight Cowboy and the Graduate in the next coming a week or so, just to sort of um, get a, a pinpoint on him. Th- this film surprised me in, in, in many ways. I think I wanted to be surprised by Cabaret. This feels like a really um, next evolution to that film. I think that the performances are outstanding, the aesthetic is outstanding, the framing, the scene blocking, the production, the set design, the performances, the social commentary, the layers that this film has. It's very much been lost in time because of the probably the, the idea of that Lenny Bruce has been slightly lost in time. But the 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 consequence of that is that the actual meat and crux of this film, its political social commentary, is still prevalent today. Um I'm shocked of how much I enjoyed this. Um, this is undoubtedly an un- un- it's, this is more sort of an uncut gem. I think um, this is this is this is an incredibly well crafted film. I think that I think probably critically it, it's regarded as such. It's just a shame that it hasn't got that second wind. Although for 1974, um, it it feels like this is a conversation we're having every day now. It just doesn't feel relevant. Ironically enough, that being said. Undoubtedly an uncut gem. I'm going to give it a really high four star. I think I'm going to let just sit on it a little bit longer and wait until this podcast comes out and then review it because I feel like that there's something inside me where I don't know what it is. It just it isn't hitting the five star, but I'm I'm not being able to justify why. So it'd be interesting to see what both of you think and see if I'm, if I'm missing something because I know we both we've got the the top three and bottom threes, but I don't think that will change my rating at all. So I'm just interested in what you two will, will end up saying. But this is an incredibly high four for me. Um, undoubtedly four stars. It just doesn't tip over that five star for me. Maybe because I'm just not engaging on it in it with with due to its social commentary because it's it's being like fucking thrown it down my thrown down my throat every other day when you look on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. Um, but all in all, I think this was outstanding. This is a one I wanted to watch as well, and I'm glad that I really got something out of it. Cool. Just to kind of put it in context, I think people need to remember that Jack doesn't believe in half stars. No, yes. Fuck that. So, okay. you know. <laughs> that would that yeah, would actually come. like sort out a lot of my issues with <laughs> with, with my rating like system, I feel but like I'm not gonna I'm, say, I'm not gonna say, but this is a problem you kinda of made for yourself. Oh undoubtedly. <laughs> undoubtedly. Don't worry about that. I I know that, don't worry. Um, but, doesn't believe but yeah, in real numbers. <laughs> no, I feel like in ultimate numbers, it, there's no half-assing things. If my <laughs> if my 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 auntie had a willy, she'd be like my uncle, wouldn't she? So I don't believe in stuff like you know, if if but some maybe. It's like only natural numbers. <laughs> yeah, so, no. yeah, we can we can half that. We can half-ass things for you, Jack. Thank mm-hmm. you, Jacob. <laughs> <coughs> Look, this plain and simple. This is a masterpiece. Five out of five. Like I really Ooh. love this film. Oh, oh yeah. Absolutely, it's a fantastic movie. Um, partly because Fosse is is kind of just climbing into a new sort of level of filmmaking acumen. Like he's showing that he's the IQ of like a look. Young Soderbergh look probably looks up to him. Like he he has the sort of the new wave um, vein in him. He's 
and he has this of the the filmmaking anger that characterized the 70s he's not a guy who's misplaced he's not like a dinosaur out of time because of his broadway sort of connection he's a guy who's pushing the envelope he's reinventing a biopic right after he's in reinventing the the genre that he grew up in so he's He's doing stuff that's important and he's telling a story that's equally important for him as it is to this, to the culture at large. And it continues to be important today, even though people would just say it's a toxic conversation. No, it's not. It's just uncomfortable because, um, uh, because it is language is a, is, is, is a contentious topic, specifically now when people still fail to realize that, um, you know, there are powers that be always like authoritarian governments and authoritarian powers or people who have um, inclinations to 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 embrace absolute power. They always wanted to control what you can and can't say. And then some people would, would rail against that. Naturally, there is a, there, at least now there is, a, as you say, like some people would, would probably just not. Well, you, you still kind of give sanctuary to people who just want to say, uh, just call people names and get away with it. Um, which is not the same to, as freedom of speech is, but I think this movie is actually just making this conversation at a time when this conversation was still in in its infancy, and it is timely and it is and, and it is important today. So I feel um, I'm super happy that I that I finally had the opportunity to watch this. Um, yeah, so I'm gonna leave it at that, and I'll just say that Dustin Hoffman really deserved an Oscar because you know like, I don't know who fucking Art Carney is, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, so you know, he's that. in the sort of firmly in the who gives a shit camp of the uh, the academy really chitting the bed on this because they had Albert, Albert Finney for Merlion the Orient Express, Dustin Hoffman, Jack Nicholson for Chinatown, and Al Pacino for The Godfather Part Two, and they cho- again like the cabaret sort of you know, like you have you have Bobby Duval, James Caan, <laughs> Al Pacino, and, and they choose. What is not Joel Silver? Joel Gray. <laughs> Joel Gray. Jennifer Gray's dad. Like, Jesus. <laughs> Again. Anyway, so five out of five. This is a masterpiece. I love Bob Fosse. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to be part of the Fosse Posse. So, <laughs> that, yeah. You tell me. <laughs> yeah, I, I am so happy to hear both of your thoughts. And, uh, yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah, this is a, this is a five-star effort. I love Bob Fosse. I love this sort of almost new perspective I'm getting in terms of going through these films in sequence and also going through the Fosse Verdon thing and just sort of living a few weeks of of Bob Fosse. I think Lenny is an incredibly personal film to him. I think that he honestly uh, sees a creative in Lenny Bruce who is struggling to manage his his work and his home life scenario. And I think that was a, a very big deal for Bob Fosse. And that's probably the connection in there. Like Bob Fosse is also because he's grounded in sort of the studio musicals and Broadway and that sort of old school. He's also a dude who is very, very aware of the counterculture and, you know, the, the students and the hippies and, and everything, this, this whole movement of the sixties, he's very aware of those perspectives, probably because he was sleeping with all of those kids. However, (laughs) What we get here is truly an impressive piece of work. It it smacks of Cassavetti's pursuit to sort of dial into real humans. I love the structure of this, this Citizen Kane structure of the interviews talking back. I think it allows him to cut through the conventions of story arc and carry uh, and but character arc 
yeah, much like, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> but he's doing away with that and, and he's giving us a, a story that is the sum of all his parts. And there's just so much to pick at and explore and have conversations about. And then on top of that, there's the importance of Lenny Bruce's discussions as, as one of these, uh, you know, early guys having this conversation that we've heard to death. And I can appreciate Jack's being tired of the conversation. I am too, but this is one of the first ones in a mainstream, uh, you know, setting that, that would have been launched. So good for him for having the balls and, and believing in the story and, and uh, producing it with this really keen cinematic eye. And I'm starting to think that his understanding of musicals, just the beat and the rhythm that made him such a strong choreographer He's spending so much time and getting so much f- footage that in the edit, he's finding a beat within his films. And that's really, really fascinating to me because these these films chug along and they vibe and they have a very impactful flow. And I think that's coming from the edit. And anyway, yeah, this is a fantastic film. This is five stars all the way. And uh, I absolutely love it. And I'm oh. so happy to have had this conversation with you guys. Also, a rule, new rule of thumb, if you, if you just look at a movie and just before deciding before you watch this, now I think I'll just quickly look up if Pauline Kael hated it. And then if she did, I'll probably love it. Because <laughs> this woman had... This woman had was the patient zero of... Like, she had COVID, you know, in like the 70s. She had fucking no taste. <laughs> I, sorry <laughs> i think we arrived at it when we talked about glory is that critics were just used to something that was set up a certain way and then the 70s came along and it was a brand new set of rules and it took critics 15 years to catch on Bastards. honestly all right let's go into our tops jack oh right tops um i'm gonna breeze through this because i feel like i've said more throughout the the, the, the the podcast but uh third um the idea to shoot this in like a faux documentarian style while also using a non-linear um, a narrative, genius, um, f- f- finds it really more immersive, have one-on-one with characters on their own, not having to use uh, like a Lenny Bruce in every single um, sequence. Also um, adds a bit of mysticism to, to how we found out Lenny Bruce went out the way he did. Um, very, very well done. Um, second... I think from start to finish, I think the editing's really impressive here. It, it, it's constantly flowing. It's fluid. Um, it's engaging. It's immersive. Uh, again, how it then it it, it, it it sort of works with the documentarian style framing uh, and through its narrative. Ah, brilliant. Um, and the first one, because it's the one thing I, I, I didn't expect, I wanted to expect to see it in Cabaret more so, but here is that, that, that sensual sex scene um, and not just the actual construct of itself, but how it ultimately arises within the characters and then as a finality with how it breaks them all down that that that, that rise and fall just perfect it's like a short film in itself um outstanding stuff and also how it's shot oh, it's majestic it's so sensual it's it's, it's almost like it's, it's beautiful how it's con- constructed but th- those would be my top threes cool <clears throat> awesome Jakob. Right, I've got the Eleanor Roosevelt giving the clap to Chiang Kai-shek, who gave it to, to J. Edgar Hoover, which is where it really spread. <laughs> <laughs> the comedic genius. <laughs> um, I really like, this is the sort of the uh, Cassavetes on displays. There's this sort of conversation in the sort of beginning of the, towards the beginning of the film, where he just tells his mother 
uh, how he met Honey, and then he says, like, I show her my bit and whatever, and he just, like, sticks a finger out of his pants, and he just chases his mom with his finger. (laughs) 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 Like, this is, yeah, yeah, this is, you know, very tight. I love it. Um, I really like... I really love the, uh, the the sort of, you know, like, you can blah my blah blah sort of bit. Um, fantastic sort of bit of comedy. And, and then there's a there's a moment I just wanted to say that's out of the reality of this. I know it's a fourth one, but, you know, like, I don't know how to count to three. Um, is when, it's not, well, it's not the collect call, because it, it just about missed my, missed my list, the sort of the phone call that he has with his wife um, after he's... Um, but then he he visits her in what I thought was prison, but I think it was like a mental institution or both. No idea what it was. And she shows her the picture of, of their kid as she's growing up. And then he she says like she says like show me the album again. And then he shows her the album, his 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 album, and he hides behind it and he just Rolls has this eyes. moment. He just yeah. has this moment. Just just. <sighs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Like this is a great character moment, and I just don't know whether this is in performance or in direction, but it works so well. Good really call. like yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> that's me. Okay, now, give me your top ten. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, one could go on and on, and actually, my top three, as it is, is very similar to Jack's, but I'll throw in an honorable just to get a little bit of variety. Um, when the interviewer is talking to Honey, and we mentioned that the interviewer who's off screen is, is Bob Fosse. And he runs, and, out, runs out of tape? No. Oh, that's sort of a neat little moment too. But but he asked, one of the questions he asked, um, why did he cheat on you? And I, I can't help but feel there's elements of this where Fosse is dealing with his own demons, his own guilt, and he's trying to understand himself in the process. And anyway, the answer to that question was insecurity. He needed to prove himself. He always needed to prove himself. And anyway, I just think that's sort of a, an interesting line to hang on Fosse. So, um, yeah, I had as number three, the use of the comedy club scenes as a Greek course, the way that they tie in. So the bit about the wives, you know, turns into, you know, the, the scene where he gets married, the bit with the lesbians turns into the menage. I like that, but then also, yeah, precisely. But then also the, the comedy bits also show, they also tell the story of the guy's career too, because you, you see basically he starts and they're terrible and then he gets a certain style and a rhythm going and then and then they sort of descend and, you know, <laughs> sort of implode by the end. So just the, the use of the comedy club uh, scenes, I think that was fantastic. Jack mentioned um, Lenny asking Honey for a threesome and then the threesome itself is just the way that it's shot in close-ups, hauntingly with no sound, just silent, slight movements. It's, and then the power dynamic within that and just the selfishness of Lenny that we see in the next scene. And then the impact of that, ultimately, that is sort of the breaking apart of the marriage right there. And it's because Lenny sexualized his his wife in, in a way that he hadn't before that. And anyway, it's just really, 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 there's a lot spoken in there in a little, and it's just fantastic. Um, and then also the inter- the interview framing device, I think that cuts through the fourth wall and it allows us just to, to give another dimension to the actors. Like they, they, in a way, even though he was maybe tortured to deal with, they, they must have loved their own performances after the fact because you really, Fosse really allows them to, uh, you know, breathe. The, you know, it, it's just such a multidimensional 
piece to having this fourth wall broken and, and have interviews, especially Valerie Perrin, you know, more so than the agent um, and the mom too. Like we, we see different layers of her as well. So I think this, it just, and it works, it just works so well. And it, it's a, it's a, it's a device that's around now. I remember it's all gone Pete Tong. I think that was sort of a great film that uses the same device of just sort of reflecting and in interviews. And it, I think it's just a, a great framing device. It's any of its time. <laughs> sort of in a way. So <clears throat> anyway. Is uh, this mom, by the way, is this like Francis McDormand's mom? She looks like her. She looks very <laughs> familiar to me, and I didn't look her up, but uh, yeah, she does, doesn't that's she? An, that's an interesting shout, yeah. <laughs> All right, our bottoms. All right, Jax, start us off here. Oh, um, I think I'm just going to briefly go over this one, because I know me and you, Randy, have said it. Um, I think it just the, the, the actual conversation morality of free speech to me is like, I'm just so just so drowned in it i find it just so tedious to have that discussion anymore um our personal note as i mentioned earlier before i do think that if it would have added a different color grade to the present day i just think it would have been a little bit more easier to follow granted it's never been a really big thing these are just going to be personal issues i don't, I don't there's nothing that really gets like i said before brings this film down in any way um just very small snippets uh, i just think it would have better with a color grade that's a personal issue the the, the big not the issue I have, but the, the concern in the film. I I think that the combination between his descent into being a martyr and his drug fueled inhibition to sort of go on on the heroin train, um, I feel like those two just weren't quite working in parallel as much as I thought they would do. I felt like they were two separate entities, um, and then you have the family dynamic as well. I just thought that those three things could have been better intertwined in certain sequences, but again, I think when the film film gears up in its third act, the last twenty minutes, fifteen minutes, you get undoubtedly get a sense of like this is why it's perking up. So nothing to be a major concern, but just three small little things I've got where I'm like, ah, you know, it, it didn't really do anything for me either way. But those are just three things that I think if I had to force myself to be a bottom three, they they would be. Okay. Jakob I've got um, <laughs> the cigar trick the guy who puts a cigar in his mouth like this <laughs> Sherman Hart <laughs> yes it's, it's an image I did not really require um, I've got a note that says arresting a puking man is just not cool um, <laughs> I just felt like because they arrest him when he's just when he's vomiting in the toilet I'm just like give him a minute uh it's a very odd scene, like it's very aggressive. And then I have to say, like, I'm not really, I mean, I know it's a five star film, but I feel like this is, like, I'm not, I don't want to say like it's a game of death sort of situation, but, but ending with the actual image of the guy's corpse is kind of, um, I can, I can see why. I can see that, like, he's, you're trying to kind of imbue this movie with some kind of profundity, but I feel like, um, I don't want to say like it would be quite quite ironic if this um, this movie about freedom of expression crossed the line, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, especially for 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 someone like me who's just I I I do have sort of my own opinions on on you know like words and words and context and and everything. I, you know, call me old fashioned, but like I I can you know like I feel like if we're done with this conversation, we're just letting the fucking assholes win. But anyway, um. What I was trying to say is just this this image to end on this image maybe um 
I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. It, it just leaves you in this sort of weird state, um, ambiguous state, and I'm not sure what this, whether this was the right move. Um, specifically, I suppose, like, you know, like, because he died in a very, un, like, he was found in a very undignified way as well. Um, I suppose you, yeah, I, I don't know. This, this may, may have been a choice of his to take, take a lot of heroin while naked. Um, but then I don't know what happened. Um, I suppose like no one really dies in a very dignified way. Like Elvis Presley dies on the fucking toilet. So like, what do I know? But just ending on this image kind of maybe undermines the guy's mission in some way, while at the same time cementing his 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 icon as a as a martyr. So I just feel a very very this is uneasy about this. That's kind of how I how I feel like I'm you know like I'm not gonna like knock a half a star off of, off of the film, but I feel like this would be an image out of if if you want to show it like just not for fifteen seconds with a slow zoom, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just there's there's something some something very icky about this image. That's just what I would say. Okay, <clears throat> that's the three. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's, that's the three. It's hard to yeah, find like a bottom sl- three in, slim, in a perfect film, pickings. right? It's slim pickings. Very slim pickings. Okay. Um, for me, number three, to come. To is a preposition, come as a verb. To is a preposition, come as a verb. It's a transitive verb. No, it isn't. It's intransitive. Come never has an object. <laughs> and I listened to that like three times and maybe he's saying intransitive, but it doesn't sound like it. It sounds transitive. <clears throat> so come no, is I, an intransitive verb. <laughs> well, I'm glad we've sorted that though. <laughs> Yeah, so there's that. Um, so number two. You followed it up with a movie called All That Jizz. <laughs> I just wait for next week. Okay. Um, num- number two, and this is a little bit more uh, serious. I feel that there's maybe there's a bit with the daughter that's missing. We, we just sort of lose track of the daughter over the last half hour or so. And I, I think... Honestly, like a, a big thing that I see in this film is, you know, Fosse wanting to tell the story of how difficult it is for people in the entertainment trade to coexist with their family. There's so many strains and stresses and pressures on a family unit where you have working parents who are trying to survive in entertainment. And, you know, we see all the perils of it and the drugs and, and whatnot. I, I think we lose we lose sight of the daughter a little bit at the end. So I don't know what necessarily the fix is, but um, anyway, that that's a little bit of a sense that I had. And and then also, yeah, my my bottom is is using the Lenny corpse photo. I think it's insensitive and it's 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 not needed in any way. Uh, so yeah, that's that's me. It is. <laughs> All right, five out of five. <laughs> Five out of five. Oh, and this is Bob. It, just Jesus. Like know your know like know your audience. <laughs> okay, so that's just it for read the first the room, Bob. Read the room. <laughs> uh, that's the first installment from the Bob Fosse Posse uh, this month, November 2023. Sweet charity. It's not really streaming anywhere. You can rent it in the UK, I think, from Sky Store. I think. Um, otherwise, good luck. Yeah. There are copies of DVDs and Blu-rays out there, but uh, I think they're hard to come by. Uh, Lenny, meanwhile, is on Tubi in Canada and in the U.S. It's also on Prime in the U.S., uh, but I think mm-hmm. in your boy's neck of the woods, it's not streaming, but you can well, rent it. This this podcast has not been sponsored by Surfshark VPN, but it was definitely enabled by it <laughs> because it's on Tubi in the U.S. and Canada. So. 
Cool. So I just and I've had it in my collection. I live in Detroit for two hours. And I've personally had it in my collection for a long time. And it was oh, really fun to pull Is that off blue? the shelf. No, that's a DVD, right? No, just DVD. Uh, so, yeah. And I think that the, if you do track it down on, on physical media, I think it's one of those rare overpriced type of things. This is like an out-of-print old Criterion mm. or something. Uh, I don't know if it ever had a Criterion. Should be a Criterion. There you go. <coughs> this the needs sort of a... Should, should be a box set, really. I it's think not, there might be a couple. All that jazz it is in a is in a Criterion form, but but yeah. Criterion Many. should come out with a box set, as in like all of all of all four C films. Like there's five of them. So yeah. you know Easy it's not fit. hard, is it? <laughs> Shouldn't be. So anyway, Jack, where can our friends find you? You can find me on Twitter before I have to pay for it. And letterbox with a username at Jack Luke Sharp. And you can also find my writings and my ramblings on uh, Clapper, ltd.co.uk. Thank you very much for reading and uh, in, <laughs> engaging with my, my ramblings from, from here now and every time. Thank you very much. Perfect. Jakob? Well, you can find me on Letterboxd as Jakob Flash and flashonfilm.com and I'm not going to pretend that I'm I'm, 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 I'm <laughs> existing on x.com. Like, who gives a shit at this point? Like, you know, social media is successful. Like, this, oh, like, you God. know. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, as <laughs> a free speech absolutist, I, ref- I ref- like you know, like I don't care. Like, oh, you're gonna deplatform me? Just <laughs> I've deplatformed myself. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> Hit me with your uh, best shot, right? <laughs> no, it's just no. It's a it's a place. Like, Twitter is a is a is an app that contributed vastly to uh, my men negatively to my mental health and i can see the difference now like being like three weeks completely off twitter it's night and day like it's so much better like just life outside of social media is so much like i don't even care what's currently trending like whatever no one gives a shit it's just all yeah smoke and mirrors is what it is people just get a life touch grass Well, where else? <laughs> or did you get through all of them? That's where people mm-hmm. find you. Yeah, yeah just okay. flashonfilm.com and Letterbox, Perfect. where I just I'm, I still need to put like a backlog of stuff on my on 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 there, so that because I still don't exist in there very well anyway. Okay, so and you can find that. me Randy Burrows <clears throat> on X, and you can find me Bratch Seven at uh, at letterbox.com and you can find me at my Facebook group Island Film Geeks, and you can check out our website, www.uncutgemspodcast.com, where you will find all of our stuff. So, folks, meet us back here next week. We will be holding the annual meeting of the Roy Scheider Fan Club. We're going to be discussing Fosse's semi-autobiographical film, All That Jazz. So, big spenders, have a great week. Mm-hmm.